You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. All right, and we are back. Just a little bit of editor's note here. Hey, everybody. It's your buddy, the GOAT. Uh, I'm going to break out some more from the vault content right here. Uh, we've done this a couple of times for these episodes I've recorded in the past. This one I want to celebrate a special five-year anniversary to one of my former podcasts that did not last very long. Uh, unfortunately, this uh, show was uh, originally hosted on TalkShoe, which really took a major dive last year technologically. They lost a lot of episodes. So, you know, this episode has not been available for a couple years. It was originally on a show called Movie Wars, and this was actually the pilot episode. And we recorded this uh, the second week of August in 2013, so five years ago, we recorded this. It is for Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, and the whole point of Movie Wars was actually kind of a precursor to what you know on the movie Graveyard. It was a movie commentary show, but it kind of had a gimmick twist, whereas two guys watching the show uh, had different opinions on the film. So this one being Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, uh, me and Trev did this episode. Uh, Trev was actually a you know, pretty big fan of this film. I actually did not like it at all. I was a Spider-Man fan, was disappointed with the way the movie came out. So, uh, yeah, listen to our Movie Wars uh, version uh, commentary of uh, Spider-Man from 2002. Again, like some of the other uh, From the Vault episodes released, um, yeah, we recorded this five years ago, but, hey, it's still, it's still the same. Spider-Man is still the same movie, so there might be a few topical references that are outdated, uh, didn't want to try to slip one past you and pass this off as a new episode. You can probably hear how younger we sound even in this episode, I think, if you really want to listen to closely like that. But yeah, so anyway, here we go. Listen to us battle it out over Spider-Man. Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Hello and welcome to Movie Wars. All right, I'm going to start over again because no, no that was horrible. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Movie Wars, a brand new podcast about movies and going to war about movies. Basically, what this is, you know, kind of explain the concept a little bit since it's our first time out, is we're basically doing a fan commentary. We do a different movie every episode. And basically, the twist to it is, instead of us just sitting there talking about how great the movie is or what we, whatever, we got two guys doing the commentary, and the whole point of it is one guy likes the movie, another guy doesn't like the movie. So for your listening and pleasure, you get to see, you go well, not to see, but hear them guys battle it out, and just to say who we are, I am the GOAT from the Hillbilly DVD Reviews podcast and YouTube channel, and joining me is... Oh, this is Trev from the If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It podcast. Uh, pleasure to be finally on a podcast with you, Goat. Yeah, no, just a little uh, backstory, real quick. Is is uh, we've been in contact through Facebook and YouTube over the last couple of years. If it bleeds, we can kill it. A great podcast, been going strong a few years. We've been doing a YouTube channel. Just recently started a podcast, and we we're like, man, you know, we always bullshit about movies on Facebook so much. We should do some kind of crossover project. So here we go, Movie Wars. 
And it really it makes sense that our crossover project would be us bitching about movies that we disagree on. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, because that, that seems to be the main point of topic whenever we talk on Facebook. We're like, what? We can't believe you like that movie. Oh, no, you like that movie? Oh, I hate that movie. So yeah. here, here, here we go. It's like a intergalactic gladiator arena full of movie talk. So to kick it off on Movie Wars Episode 1, we have Spider-Man. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man for 2002. The thing just started the whole pretty much Marvel Cinematic Universe as we know it right now. We're going to be debating this thing. And for you fans out there who actually have the DVD or have the Blu-ray and you want to sync it up and watch it with us so you know exactly what we're talking about, we're going to do some sync instructions here. For the people who are just listening at work or listening on the bus or something like that, you don't have the movie, we're going to do our best to describe what goes on in the movie so you guys aren't left out either. But if you're following around at home, the sync instructions is put your DVD in, put your Blu-ray in, and basically, when the movie starts, there's that little Columbia logo, a girl holding the light up. Well, after that logo like fades down, it goes to a black screen right before it. I think it hits the Marvel logo. So we're on that black screen. So get it synced up to where you see the girl come up. She fades up. The Columbia logo comes in. Then it fades to black. We're on the black screen right now. On the Blu-ray, that's at exactly 21 seconds. Not sure where you are on the DVD. Uh, no, yeah, I'm on 21 also. So. Okay, so 21 seconds into the movie... Sometimes DVDs and Blu-rays, they sync up differently, but it looks like we're doing good here. So I'm going to say one, two, three, go, Trev, and then on All the right. word go, hit your play button. So one, two, three, go. All, All right. right. We got the Marvel logo rolling. Yep. This is actually the first movie to use this logo. Yeah, it is. Uh, just like quick backstory, I think the only previous Marvel movie before this was Blade. I can't remember if they used it on the – I know they used it on the Blade sequels, but I don't think they did it no, on the I did a little bit. I, I came a little prepared. I did some trivia. I looked at some trivia for this film, and it said that that was the first movie to use it. But awesome. it seems weird to think that now because I feel like I've seen that 300 times over the past decade. You know. Well, you pretty much have. Now it almost seems like you try to watch a, a commercial like on the internet. And it's got that logo like for <laughs> Spider-Man underwear and action figures. Yeah. So, so get with the screen-specific stuff just for a second. Like we're probably going to bullshit through this. There's an opening credit sequence here. Uh, I watched this movie uh two days ago just to refresh myself because it had been a while and like i could not believe honestly you're coming from a comic book standpoint and shit oh and by the way uh to clarify movie wars one guy likes it one guy's on i actually don't like this movie and trevor does like this movie so yep. it lets you know what side of the fence we're on but getting back to this i mean you have this great history of <laughs> spider-man man like like they could have used like panels from the comic book they could have done like some little animation like there's been so many and this, Trev, I'm sorry, buddy, but this has to be the most piss poor CGI <laughs> animatic, whatever. It's, it's okay. I like I don't like you. I did not go back and rewatch this. This is my first time watching this in years. Mm -hmm. Um, watch this. I'll admit, like the I don't mind the web animation, but this little cartoon Spider-Man that keeps coming in is pretty oh, bad. It's shitty, dude. It's shitty. And, but and it, I, I don't know. Even the webs are too like goofy and CGI and shit. It's actually strange to watch this and think that this is actually like pre like the three D boom though, because this looks like it was made to be three D. That is true. Like basically, for the people not following along, like there's just like credits flying at the screen and shit, and there's also like a lot of turning and zooming in action going on, which is like pretty much all credit sequences do now. To be honest with you. Although what you were saying about the panels and everything, I feel like they got better with that as the series went on. Because like, doesn't Spider Man Two kind of have like a uh, panels of like scenes from this film like redone as a comic book it's kind of i kind of remember that i think yeah i can't remember if it's two or three but you're right it probably is two that, that i do remember some shots kind of like 
almost, I can't remember. I could be misremembered, but I think they put like a cartoon effect to make it look more comic book. Or maybe they just used the straight little like still photos. But yeah, but yeah. this this opening credit sequence, and I mean to be honest, like like all the criticisms I have with this movie, this movie's not too bloated. It's not too long. Like a lot of Marvel movies now, all tend to be exactly two and a half hours. This one is exactly two hours. But still, I mean, even though it's with that relatively normal running length, like, they could have cut five minutes out, just, like, they could have done shots of the city, they could have showed Peter Parker, like, whatever, and, like, I don't know, just, to, to, like, some imaginary, made-up bullshit has nothing to do with the comic book, poor-ass cartoon. <laughs> like, that's a waste of five minutes of screen time, if you ask me. It's a pretty long credit sequence, but I give them credit for trying something to, something unique. I don't know. I mean, they were brand new to this, man. Superhero movies weren't really a thing yet, you know? That is true. That is true. So here we go, like the first real, you know, there's a little city shot, but first real image you see of this movie is of, you know, uh, I, I can't remember now, is her name Kirsten Dunst or Kristen Dunst? I get I get mixed up with the... I would like say, her. I say Kirsten, but I mean, who who cares? No, I think, yeah, okay, I think it is Kirsten. Anyway, shot of her face, big criticism a lot of fans had that, because in the comic book world, Mary Jane grows up to be a supermodel and stuff, They a lot of people... You know, really down on Kirsten Dunn's looks and stuff. But at least in this first movie, man, like, I give her credit. Like, I thought she was, aside from that nasty red hair dye, she was a good-looking girl at this point in time. Yeah, I thought she was cute. And I, I mean, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about her performance as the film goes along. But I never had any problems with her, at least not this go-around. Yeah, I mean, she looked good. Like, like I mean, I don't know. Like, I'll, I'll have some criticism later what they did with the Mary Jane character. But as far as, like, what's on her, I, don't, I really actually don't have no problems. Now, here we go next to her is a lot of people won't notice, like, I looked at the credits, I did double take, whatever, playing her boyfriend, Flash Thompson, is actually Tony Bag of Donuts, you might know him, he's from the show True Blood, he got naked in the movie Magic Mike, and he, he came like a, a smidge hair away from being the new Superman, supposedly. Man, if you hadn't, if you hadn't told me that, I wouldn't have ever realized that was him. Yeah, man. Because uh, he, he's got like waxed eyebrows, he's got short hair, every time you see him now, he's got a grizzly man beard, and... Like, he doesn't look very much different from the guy who plays Flash in The Amazing Spider-Man. They kind of just keep getting the same kind of type for that. It seems like the hair could get slightly shorter and shorter, but that's about <laughs> it. Like, here he has spiky hair, but, but in the new one, of course, he's got to have the standard generic 2000s buzz cut, I think. But Flash is like a blonde in the comics, too. Right? I don't know, they keep getting that wrong, but I guess they just don't care. You know? That'd be probably actually kind of piss poor <laughs> for the new franchise to get their comic book facts right. They just watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> So here we go, like, I don't have too much of a problem with this scene, but it is very, like, awkward in a way. You got young James Franco, who looks much younger. You could tell he wasn't chain-smoking nonstop and, you know, doing whatever he does in his personal life. He looks like a young, like a really young kid in here. Actually, much younger than Tobey Maguire. He almost got the role of Spider-Man. He was one of the, like, runner-ups, you know? Yeah, what, like, you never know with these lists, like, because Tony Bagadonis from True Blood, he claims he was so close to being... Superman shit. You never know what these actors are lying or whatever, but the list that I saw included James Franco, almost Spider-Man, Colin Farrell, almost Spider-Man, and then some guy like Joe Rayon, or I don't know, something like, that's the one I thought Wikipedia, somebody snuck on there, because I, I never heard of this Joe Rayon guy, and, uh, but very interesting. I have to say, man, like, I would have totally been down with it if Franco would have been Spider-Man, because he's taller, he's kind of got, at this point in time, He's a little beefed up now if you see him like Spring Breakers, but at this time he's like really skinny and like, you know, almost looks like a swimmer or like a dancer type. I think he had the better body type, I think, to be Spider-Man. 
If you, I mean, if you say so. I'm not, I'm not staring at these guys' bodies, but if you want to go that way, I mean. Well, when I say body, what I mean is, like, Spider-Man has a very uh, recognizable silhouette in the comic books. He always, mm-hmm. like, he's very kind of tall and lanky. And Tobey Maguire, even though, like, I don't, I wouldn't go as far as call him a short, short guy. Like, he just, he doesn't have that. Like, especially because he buffed up for this role. I think it made him look even a little more squattier. And... Yeah, I actually think I, he got even more buff in the sequels. And I actually thought that was a mistake to make him try to get buff. Because I think, like you said, since he is shorter, that made him look kind of bizarre as Spider-Man. Exactly. And, and another thing, too, is um, just a Spider-Man character and stuff. From what I understand it, and you got to understand, I grew up as a fan in the 80s and stuff. So, you know, I don't know, like, a lot of the newer movies stuff are influenced by this ultimate version. But the way I understood it, like, Spider-Man, when he gained his spider strength, it really wasn't like a muscle. Like, like a lot of heroes, like, they're, like Superman, for example, their muscles, like, get denser because of their powers. Spider-Man was not really like that. He just kind of adapted, even though he had the strength, he kind of just adapted to it, like, the way he's playing the comic books. It's, like, re- in relation to, like, a, how a spider has a certain strength, like, how yeah. many times its body weight. So, I mean, exactly. Like, there's no reason for this motherfucker gets, like, so buff. <laughs> you don't like, see very, you don't see very, like, ripped spiders out in nature. No, that's for sure. th- they're very long and spindly. Like, like but, uh, you know, this is the Sam Raimi-verse, whatever. And just a brief uh, aside here. You're watching this on Blu-ray, right? Yeah, that's right. All right, I'm watching this on DVD, and I just gotta say, this DVD looks like shit. I can't believe like how quickly like the picture quality of something can fall like in your in your eyes. You know, this is top of the line stuff when I got it back in 2002. <laughs> but man, you, you know, you know, man, and this is one of my main criticisms when we get into a look. For the people not following along at home, this is like just the scene where the school field trip. They're just walking around looking at the you know genetically engineered spiders and stuff, man, and and so it's like right before Spider-Man gets bit for people who ain't following the DVD. But that's one of my main criticisms with this is I have the I have the Blu-ray, and not only that, but I have the the newest package version, if you will. Uh, it's not the like new one they have come out 4K, but this came out last summer. The disc that I actually have, it's updated to have a trailer for Amazing Spider-Man on it. So this ain't like the original Spider-Man disc that came out like five six years ago on Blur. This is the brand new, like whatever Blu-ray, and I don't know if they didn't remaster it or what, but it looks like shit. And the okay. only, the only thing I could come, I mean, it don't look like shit. It's clear, but there's a huge difference in the in the the colors. And what I thought maybe it kind of looks like a really old film. Like this is 2002, and I swear, Trev, it looks like a movie from 1994. Like recently, I watched the the action movie Assassins with Sylvester Stallone. And Tony Barris. Now that movie was 1995, and it has the exact same look on high def. Oh this yeah, movie I does. I agree. I mean, I'm not seeing the Blu-ray, but that's what I was like, that's what I was thinking watching this DVD. Is it makes it look like an older movie. It doesn't look like it's from the early 2000s. Yeah, because and, and what I'm getting at is like I ain't like an expert or nothing, but I understand like this was from the era where they shot it on film, and you know, film is processed with chemicals and stuff, and the way they used to do, you know, it was a lot of a hands-on physical chemical film process. And, like, they couldn't, like, tweak the colors they could with uh, with modern, you know, either shot on digital or film scan on the computer. Now they do what's called a digital inter- intermediate where you can go into a computer, change any color you want, brighten, darken. So I was like, well, that's what happened with this. I was like, that's mm-hmm. what happened. It just was before film. You know, they just did the movie. 
Like, it didn't get processed into digital. But if you watch it in credits, there's a company listed as supplying the digital intermediate. So this this movie was touched in the digital world as, as far as the film look of it and the processing and shit. So I don't, like, maybe that was Raimi's decision to try to go with something more classic. But it really looks like a movie from 89 to 96 era, I would say. It really does not look like a modern movie at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, it could be worse. We could have got that long-threatened, like, canon uh, Spider-Man movie. Oh yeah, so. Golden Globus. <laughs> yeah, we would have got that thing. So anyway, we're 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 bullshitting along so much, we totally just missed the point. Like it was basically like a little impromptu photo shoot at the science fair. I like that moment. That's a good character moment for Mary Jane. You can tell Kirsten Dunst is actually having fun and kind of like it makes the character likable right away. I, I agree, man. I have like be honest with you, I have no real problems with her performance. It just like when I was watching that the other day, I was kind of like. It's so obvious, like, he's got a, like, I mean, the only reason he, because he's like, I need a picture for the school paper, staying in front of the spider exhibit, and he takes a picture, and then she starts posing, he takes, like, 40 pictures, like, I mean, doesn't she know that he's just going to take them pictures home and whack off to them? I mean, come on. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you went to high school, sometimes those girls, they, I mean, even if they know, they don't care, you know? That's true, man, like, maybe she just is attention work. So now we flip to, like, literally just the spider came down while he was taking them pictures, and it got he got bit. I mean, it was like a 20-second, like, scene. Like, it wasn't, like, some great big thing, you know. So, like, we're, okay, we're moving on, and now we're at the Green Goblin lair. He's trying I to do want to quickly point out, uh, in the trivia I was looking at, I don't know if you noticed, that spider that came down and bit him was an actual spider that they, like, anesthetized and then spray-painted or painted blue and red. Wow. So, I mean, why bother with puppets and CGI when you can resort to animal cruelty instead, you know? I was going to say, because when I watched it, it actually shocked me, because there's a quick shot of it up in a spider web right before it comes down and bites him. And you could tell, because like you could tell they didn't have the timing of the shot down, because they didn't know what the spider was going to do. Like, the spider starts to walk away, and then they just cut, and they, like, you could tell that, like, probably some asshole sat there for, like, 12 hours poking that spider, <laughs> trying to get that shot. All right, so here we go. We totally, totally, man, we, I, like, the fear was, like, you know, will we have enough to talk about through this two-hour movie? And, like, we can't even keep up what's going on screen. So we, we got a brief, like, little behind-the-scenes scene of Oscorp. They're about to lose a big government contract. They're kind of, like, in this version of the movie, I kind of took it that uh, Norman Osborn is kind of more of a Tony Stark. Like, there is a lot of scientific research going on, but nothing like how there is in the newer movie. It's like, it's really about some machines and some hardcore shit and like yeah they they're, they're doing this testing to you know create super soldiers but they're also creating physical weapons for you know for people to use and shit. Mm-hmm. That was that we got our first look at the uh, the Green Goblin costume, which I'm sure we'll have a lot more to say about later. But. Yeah, like you, it sands the helmet. He didn't have the creepy Yoda looking helmet thing on. Looked but, even weirder. Some bald guy with some weird like green sunglasses on. You, you know what I was thinking? Like this is behind the scenes, whatever, but. I, I saw some test footage before they went on with the mask they did, and it, it was actually a goblin mask, but it was very smooth green skin, and it kind of almost looked like that was the makeup, but the, before they painted it green or whatever. Like, I don't yeah. Now, what did you think of that footage when you saw it, of the original, like, the, the, the real goblin mask? Well, me being a Spider-Man fan, full disclosure, the, probably the reason I'm harder on this movie than anybody is I grew up, Spider-Man was my hero. That was, like, the number one thing that I was into and all that as a kid. And so, like, obviously, if, you know, if you're a Spider-Man fan, no matter where you get it, whether you get it through the comics or the cartoons, Green Goblin is always the number one nemesis of Spider-Man. And what I loved in the comic books was he actually had a physical mask, like almost like a Halloween mask he pulled off and on. 
What I wanted to happen was, and I and Will, by the way, Willem Dafoe, perfect casting for Green Goblin. He looks like the Green Goblin, even just normally. I wanted to do like a Mission Impossible type thing where it's actually Dafoe in just like very slight prosthetic makeup with his, you know, kind of green, maybe build up his cheekbones, his chin a little bit. And then he does like the Mission Impossible trick where he goes to pull it off and it's a mask. But obviously, like it wasn't a mask. It was just some really good makeup. So when I saw that test footage, it wasn't quite what I wanted. But I got to say, it was a million years better because basically it was like a smooth green goblin face. But not a, it didn't have like a lot. It didn't look realistic, I don't think. Like it didn't have like a lot of pores and shit. And the eyes were kind of just like, weren't they kind of like sunglass eyes? Like they were kind of just yeah. like. Yeah, I mean, when I saw that footage, my, my thought was like, as Spider-Man fans, because just like you, I grew up in Spider-Man. He is my favorite superhero. Uh, well, maybe, I don't know, it's close between him and Batman. But um, I definitely would have liked to have seen it. But then when I saw that footage, I kind of get the sense that, like, yeah, as Spider-Man fans, we get it and we like that. But it could have been laughable to, like, a general audience. Not that what they came up with in, instead wasn't much better, but I'm yeah. sure that was their fear. Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, I know exactly. And that's kind of my gripe with superhero movies, especially now we're, like, kind of in the fourth generation of super movies. We got we got to let it go, man. These are based on comic books. Let's get outrageous. Let's like have some you know some heinous looking uh, creature c- characters in these things. Like let's quit going back to these like you know just like X Men with the leather jackets and shit. It's like no, let's go full first because I understand like in the beginning and even with this movie like they were kind of trying to sell the idea of a comic book movie being good to a general audience. But like the general audience is on board at this point. Like let's broaden it out. And I really hope with the new series they get a real Green Goblin, but what they were just getting back to this movie, what they went with for the Green Goblin costume of this movie, just I'm sorry, it just was ridiculous. And we'll get to it when they show it and shit. I mean, I agree with you. The general audience at this point has paid to see a movie called Spider Man. You don't need to like keep for you know apologizing for what it is. All right, so we're moving along, and we got the Green Goblin. I heard some popping and bubbling on the Skype here. <laughs> Hopefully, everything's going good. All right. it, looks, it looks like. I I've never heard that sound before. I don't know if somebody else was trying to call or what was going on, but it looks like we're doing okay. So we're moving on to the point where now we're we're kind of like what the movie's doing, and I thought this was a little bit of a mistake, was they're kind of at the same time cutting back and forth between the Spider-Man origin and the Green Goblin origin. And the combo of what the Green Goblin or, or Osborne was trying to sell to the army was a super engineer, soldier, whatever. But it was a combination of a suit that you wear, a glider that you ride on, but also you, you, like some kind of chemical agent that makes like a super soldier. So it was driving all the, the test subjects crazy. So for whatever reason, after this formula f- failed over and over, Willem Dafoe jumps into a gas chamber and breathes it in the gas. Well, I mean, I don't know, man. Like this is, you know, I understand this is like over the top comic book movie, but... Why would you? Why would? Why would he do that? Why would he just jump in there and breathe in this gas? <laughs> I mean, he's willing to sell. I mean, he, that shows his dedication to his own science. You know, he thinks it's going to work. So basically, to explain what, what what happens when he breathes in the gas, he creates like a like a really a schizophrenic alter ego, which is the mm-hmm. Green Goblin. And like this is my problem. Like he doesn't come out. It's not really a scene of like a new character waking up in a body and being born. Like he literally breathes the gas out. There's one other guy in the. Uh, the room if people don't aren't watching along and he just like he jumps out he jumps through some glass and like right away like there's no like moment of like i don't know like waking up or becoming it just he jumps out and he's like ah, ah. <laughs> and he starts running around he, like he throws the guy across the room just to show he has super strength then he just runs around starts destroying everything i mean 
I don't know, man. Like, especially from a guy like Sam Raimi, I just expected. I mean, to his credit, Sam Raimi, like his previous movies, like he had pretty like interesting creature type like enemies or villains or whatever. And just the way like he's just like, yeah, Green Goblin's just a guy who runs around and screams and and, and makes like sounds nonstop. No, well, I was actually gonna say, see, I'm I'm here's where I'm disagreeing with you again. Is I kind of feel like that moment is the way it is because it's Sam Raimi. I think, like, we're going to talk a lot about the tone of this film, I'm sure, and it is that Raimi tone of, like, he's not afraid to just play it ridiculous. I mean, we, True. you know, since, oh, this is 2002, this is, like, the first big superhero movie. What we've seen since then is, like, every superhero movie going trying to go for, like, a more serious, like, you know, somber tone. And it's kind of fun to go back and watch these Raimi films and remember that he was just kind of presenting a more goofy, lighthearted, you know, tone. So I don't think he would have played the Green Goblin moment, like, overly serious or anything. But, like, what I was looking for more for was, like, I would have been fine with kind of, like, a transformation equivalent to, like, what happens to somebody when they come into a dead, become a deadite in the Evil Dead movies. But this was just, like, it wasn't like, it wasn't like a character waking up in a new body. It wasn't like somebody being overtaken by a force. It just, he just opens his eyes and he goes, ah! <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. So here we go, moving along. We got, we're, here we're getting the kind of, like. And there's the classic, the car. Yeah, the class of the car. We're, we're getting into more the home life. And, and, and I think just to speed things up or whatever, they made Mary Jane and uh, Peter Parker actually be next door neighbors. And Mary Jane has like a real piece of shit dad that like always wearing a white beater, always drunk. Like I, I really didn't get what was going on, but like he just like basically calls her worthless every time she leaves to go to school or leaves the house or anything. So we have that scene that Tobey Maguire comes out and he watches her and like he thinks he's going to console her, but then of course her richy rich friends pull up in a Mustang. I mean, I don't know, like a little bit of shortcutting going on here with the storytelling, but I guess I guess if you got to get it like all crammed into a two-hour movie, you kind of that's what you got to do. Yeah, there's a lot of story packed into this movie. I mean, it's you know, and we also we we missed like the the physical transformation we were talking about. We had a moment earlier where. He get, he came home and was feeling ill from. He actually looked like an outtake from like Train Spotting or something. It kind of made him look like a heroin addict <laughs> he was, for a bit. He's kind of sweating it out, yeah. Yeah, and then he wakes up and now suddenly he's all buff and doesn't need his glasses anymore. Which I mean, whatever. Like, I mean, it, I I really don't have a problem with that scene. Like, other than like, I don't know that that that, mu- that muscle flexing scene. I felt like was put into the movie just to be a trailer money shot or whatever because that was in every single trailer for this movie when it came out. Not that world, uh, not that World Trade Center teaser. Oh yeah, man, they totally took that out of the line. Here we got a quick scene. I ain't going to talk about it too much. I want to talk about this World Trade Center thing. But basically, we're establishing the Jekyll and Hyde nature of Green Goblin. Franco comes home. He finds the foe laying on the ground. You know, like just not knowing what had happened the next night before and all that. But basically, what Trev was talking about, there was originally because they wanted to hype this movie up before they had the, the actual movie clips ready. They shot a whole trailer, which I thought it was kind of curious casting. But they had David Hyde Pierce play bank robber, <laughs> and it's kind of like a, a almost like a heat scenario to come into the bank. It would, with it's been a while since I've seen it, but I'm pretty sure they had machine guns and bags and getting all the money. Next thing you know, Spider Man's in the bank. You don't see a whole lot, just quick flashes. And then the movie ends with like kind of like a news or police helicopter coming by, and all the bank robbers, they're laying in a giant web, but the web is like spread out in between the two, you know, the Twin Towers, the World Trade Center Towers. And I guess there is, 
I would have left it out there as like a whatever, like stay strong message. But the after 9/11 happened, the the movie company pulled that trailer out of theaters, and like the, like they don't even put it on the DVDs even 10 years nope. later, nothing. So. It's only our memories that keep it alive. Exactly, and I'm sure it's out there in, on YouTube or something somewhere, but it'll probably be real shitty quality. But I gotta say, man, like that that trailer, man, like other than the visual of the giant web was a little corny. I that that trailer got me hyped for this movie, man. Like I was, I thought it was gonna be, you know, a great movie. And, I, and like, not that it, the trailer was overly tense or anything, but it's it didn't really like portray this uh, kind of comedic, rainy, goofy fashion that he followed up with. That's something good to talk about right now, since there's. I don't mean. I mean, if you want to talk about this lunchroom scene, that's fine. But I don't think it's that interesting. But uh, j- j- just a real quick thing about this is is this is where we start to the main deviation that Sam Raimi did from the comic books is Peter Parker starts having some gooey substance which kind of stretches out to be webs coming out of his wrist and you don't see exactly too good you just kind of see it coming underneath the cuff of his shirt but basically he's expelling webs where in the comic book Spider-Man takes like an adhesive type substance he packs it into like an actual shooter thing that he wears on his wrist and he shoots it out and he has little web cartridges but for this adaptation whatever Raimi like really wanted to like just have it come out of his body which to me was like a move to make it make more sense to the mainstream audience but Mm -hmm. to me it just like I still think it's gross even to this day man like especially because he shoots it on people's faces and shit like the fact that that's literally a bodily fluid like I like that was like the main thing that got me hating this movie when I first really I mean that doesn't bother me like I don't really have a preference one way or the other I mean after this movie, they actually adopted that in the comic books, too, for for a while. They gave them the organic shooters. Now they've gone back to the mechanical ones. But I don't know. Either one, I don't really have a preference one way or the other. Well, the it thing, doesn't bother me that it's a bodily fluid because, I mean, he is Spider-Man. It is a web, you know. It's well, Come on, man. Like, any bodily fluid shot onto the face of somebody, that's, that's, that's like, to me, that's like hey, gross-out humor. Get your mind out of the gutter, goat. But I don't know. But, but basically it was... And I've seen the pre-production sketches. Like, basically what it was, and this is where I kind of turned south on the movie, was originally it was going to be literally a tiny cock was going to come out of his wrist. And, like, it was it, it, like there's no other way to describe it. It looked like a tiny cock would somehow grow out of his wrist when he would spin the webs. But then they were like, well, we can't show that because, it, A, it looks like a tiny cock, and, B, it, it kind of makes the whole webbing thing seem even grosser. Was that for, like, David Cronenberg's Spider-Man? That actually would have been perfect. Like Cronenberg would have the whole movie would have just been about cocks growing out of a guy's wrist. <laughs> but yeah, so I was like, I was like, oh man, this is just. I was just like, to me, the going to the organic web shooter caused more problems than it fucking fixed. But I mean, whatever. Like, but but it's like if you're gonna do that, because like basically the way the movie explains it now is like, and I, and this is why I think it's the biggest plot hole. He looks at his wrist here in this scene we're watching here. And how would you describe that? It's just like a smooth spot of like whiteness. It looks like a like he burned his hand on the stove or something. And yeah, it is weird. I don't remember if they're very consistent with showing that that's always on his wrist throughout the rest of the trilogy. You know? No, 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 no. They, they see that, and that was my problem with is like if you're going to do it, stick by it. But they just totally retreat it because like like me just being like whatever, not wanting to hate the other ones as bad. Like I just in my mind. I just always pretended like he had real web shooters because like I had to get that out of my mind. But but yeah, like they never show it. They like and they set up real briefly that he does the the classic Spider-Man like kind of hand flipping motion to get the web to spoon out. But even that doesn't make any sense. Basically, my point is, how does a projectile 
come out of a flat, smooth surface. Like, I don't get that, like, whatsoever, but... Yeah, I don't know. It's got to be coming through the pores, I guess, but, I mean, I'm not going to put any more thought into it than they did, you know? <laughs> and that's my problem, man. Like, here we're treated some shitty CGI, like, shitty CGI. Uh, yeah, to this is to Tobey jumping, and it's just... It's, it's like one of them CGI stunt doubles. And when I was watching this the other day, I was like, wow, this is really showing the age of this movie. But then I did the math in the head in my head, and this came out like three years after The Matrix, which did very similar scenes, but but, but did it way better. And basically... Well, I don't know, but if you remember The Matrix uh, Reloaded, when they had like the burly brawl, I mean, there was some like... The people in that kind of looked like what we just saw. Where it's Oh, like... no, no. They, they looked horrible. In the beginning of Blade 2, Del Toro did like a real quick thing, kind of a Blade where it's bad. But but as far as like what was in the first, and I agree with you, the Burley Brawl was god awful. But that was in the second Matrix movie, which actually I think came out around the time this movie did. But the I'm pretty sure Matrix came out either '98 or '99, and yeah. the shots of Neo jumping across the, the buildings in that, which is like literally the exact same like action, they look so much better. So here we have McGuire shooting his wrist cum all over New York City, <laughs> like <laughs> trying to perfect <laughs> how it how he can go. And, and, like, the physical shots of what he's holding on to, it looks like he's holding on to some nylon string. Like, it, it's, it's so rubbery and bouncy and horrible. <laughs> now, do you, have a pro do you have a problem with them showing those little, like, uh, things come out of his fingers to climb up walls? Or No, no, like, actually, I don't. Because, I mean, like, in the comic book, they're just, like, obviously, he just adapts the, the things of the spider. But they never really, like, in the comic, I never remember seeing, like, in the origin. Because I had to reprint it. Uh, origin issue that I, I loved as a kid, I cherished as a kid, and um, they never ever established that them little things came out. So I mean, like, yeah. like I mean, I understand that like that was just Raimi doing like no, like as far as like the changes of Spider-Man, the, the the web shooters are the only thing that I bitch about. And like, I can't talk. I I mean, like I'm we're kind of just being conversational here, but I hate it. I fucking like I'm actually okay with this movie up until the point that Jizz shoots out of his wrist. I fucking I hate it. But we we we, to, we totally there was something we were going to talk about before I went on my thirty minute rant about web shooters. If you remember what it is, go ahead and go for it. Uh, no, maybe it's something that'll come back. I mean, but yeah, but but basically, also number one thing, well, actually number two thing besides web shooters is I really don't like the Parker characterization of this. I was really down with 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 a kind of a combination of the original comic and also the Ralph Bakshi cartoon series, because that was running in the 80s when I was a kid. It was from, like, 67, but it was running in the 80s, and, like, they always showed the origin episode a lot on TV when I was a kid. And basically, the characterization that was, he was a super smart science nerd who actually, like, he thought, like, hanging out and going to football games and shit was trivial and a waste of time. I mean, he was just looking forward to, like, his future and stuff. And, like, I, I mean, I understand you, you can't really do that kind of now because, like, then nobody will be sympathetic. But they made him a total, like, puss. Like, even – and, by the way, like, I mean, this series of movies made me hate Tobey Maguire. But I actually am a fan of him in other films. But this – maybe maybe you object to this, maybe you don't. But he has this weird, like, cracking voice thing in the series of films where he's always, like – like, especially, like, when he's quiet and he has to say something serious, like, in this scene that's going on right now with Mary Jane, he's like, well – that's okay. I, we scream a lot too. Ugh. I cannot stand his voice in this movie. It's terrible. I don't know. I mean, I yeah, I'm gonna have to disagree with you. I I actually really enjoy Tobey Maguire in these. I mean, I how did you feel when you originally heard that casting? Because I remember, like, first of all, we should talk about how you probably encountered this too, where when 
we were talking earlier about like Colin Farrell being rumored for it. I mean, I know Cameron was big on uh, Leo DiCaprio playing the role. Exactly. I just remember when, when Tobey Maguire got the role, I remember a lot of people saying like, "Oh, I can't believe they got like a nerdy kind of actor to play it," which kind of just told you that you know those were the people who didn't read the comics. But no, honestly, believe it or not, I was perfectly fine from it. I had seen Maguire in a few movies before this, and and I actually liked him. Uh, the main one being kind of like right before the casting news came out, I saw him in the uh, Ang Lee's The Ice Storm. So mm-hmm. like I actually I actually liked him, man. I was on board with it. And to be honest, like this this series turned me against him, but I've come back on board. I mean, it's not the best movie, but I thought he was pretty good in Brothers. But recently, just about a week ago, man, I saw on uh, on Netflix streaming, I saw an indie movie I'd never heard about. I came across it called uh, The Details from uh, like 2011, 2012. Or it was just a very quirky movie with McGuire and uh, Elizabeth Banks, ironically enough, because she's in these films. She plays his wife. And basically he has a raccoon problem. These raccoons are digging up his backyard. <laughs> and it, and he, so he's trying to kill him. He's trying to kill him. And, like, next thing you know, he's sleeping all around on on his wife and because he, he's, like, a doctor and shit. And then, like, I don't give it away, but, like, it becomes very dark. He has to, like, get rid of, like, a woman that he knocked up on the side and shit. Dennis Haysbert play, plays a role in it, and just, like, it's very dark, very twisted. And he does play kind of like a bump-on-the-log type character, kind of like a G-Wow kind of guy, like he does in this, but he he's not, like, annoyingly with it. Like, he, it's not like every scene he's not like, oh, wow, wee, oh, You know, he's just kind of like a guy who's pretty much a wimp, but at the same time, like, he's reacting in the situation, like, I almost feel like he was going for some kind of weird, like, almost like what a Johnny Depp would do with some weird over-the-top expressionistic acting in this movie like his like like this scene he's looking at car ads and like his eyes are bugging out and he's like smiling like it just it, he's so cheesy and over the top in this movie i mean i just think this movie's going for kind of a cheesy over-the-top tone and that's part of what i like about it I mean, now, of course you always see those amateur wrestler ads in your car magazines so especially in 2002 <laughs> <laughs> oh i love these special effects here that we get like a montage of like cars and 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 like kind of he's come up with a design for the thing and it's it's very bizarrely like kind of green screen like mm-hmm. backgrounds and things popping out of the camera like you there's said, some easter eggs here for fans some of these designs are like other marvel characters uh that's obviously the one we just saw is kind of a takeoff on venom with uh raimi even getting a little dig in on venom there with the needs more color oh wow like i mean i saw that but i totally didn't get that connection yeah, and these drawings are actually done by Phil Jimenez, who's a, kind of a, a well-known comic artist, mostly known for like a Superman, actually, I believe. Well, I do like this final thing he comes up with on the page. There. I mean, it is Spider-Man, you know, it's his, <laughs> his, his final design choice, but it's a very cool little sketchbook thing. I actually, I don't know if you've seen it, but um, while no. the movie was shooting, there was a lot of Alex Ross concept art that came out. Yeah. And there was uh, there's actually a Spider-Man suit that looks somewhat similar to what came out in Amazing Spider-Man. But it's a, they kept changing the colors from red and blue to red and black and all the concept art. And I think Raimi, like you said, just being the old school fan, was like, no, red and blue, red and blue. Yeah, I was very happy when I saw the movie, just that we got the costume the way it was. Because like you said, like, I mean, well, actually, was this before X-Men or... Uh, it's after. It's two years after. Okay, yeah. So we'd already had Batman, we'd had X Men. It was kind of becoming the the norm to like not do the comic book costumes. And so I was I was happy that Raimi kind of fought to keep it the way it should look. Speaking of Batman, like I, one thing I will say about Raimi is I, I think this movie was a revelation 
inter- for some reason, the comic book costume movies, it was always thick leather, rubber that was like, you know, like my, my poor ass Michael Keaton couldn't move in the Batman yeah. costume. And like, I really thought after this came out, I thought the next Batman movie that would ever be released after this, I thought they would go with something similar to the, like the material that Spider-Man wore. But now like when Batman Begins came, I think it was more WB push it on Chris Nolan, but they went back to that really stiff like rubber suit where he couldn't. Move. I actually, I, I, I don't know. I kind of feel like I mean, and I'm sure we'll talk about Nolan at various times throughout as this podcast as we go on. But Nolan was the one who was pushing for that whole realism thing. So I think in his head he'd be like, well, it has to be kind of armor if Batman's going to be a realistic character. But I, I am eager to see someday somebody make a live action Batman movie with like kind of the more traditional comic costume. Oh, I, not only that, I like uh, like a lot of times they, they go with the black and gray. Uh, I want to see the, the the blue and gray Batman, but I, but I, but I think in terms of realism, I think you can go for a real blend in terms of like if you lighten his suit up, yeah, he couldn't take bullets or take as much damage, but he could move more and he could probably avoid the damage more is what I'm thinking. But 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 man, we've been talking about this whole movie the whole time, man. Like going off on our tangents, shit. Here we have the classic. With great power comes great responsibility. And I think this is what we were going to talk about, Trev, was the, the car, the classic. This is the car from The Evil Dead. Sam Raimi saved it through all the years. He puts it into all his movies and stuff. And I got to say, man, like for all my criticism of this movie, and I kind of do hate this movie, I had no problem with this. I, you know, I was and still am an Evil Dead fan, so like I thought it was cool seeing this shit in here. Did, did, it, did it kind of feel strange to you seeing it in like a big budget? Oh, movie? no. I mean, like so I said, I was so happy to see it because you expect to see it when you're a Raimi fan. I mean, it's, he even got that car into the quick and the dead, you know? So, oh, I mean, did he? <laughs> I yeah, actually, they took the body off of it and just used the, the engine in the car as like uh, one of the wagons in the film. Wow, that's amazing. But, uh,. But no, it's, I mean, why, I mean, I don't see, like, it's, it's not like it's overly distracting or anything. It's just, like, a little thing that's in there for the ten people in the theater who would know, if that, you know. That's true. I mean, I'm from, I'm from Michigan, so you tend to get, like, a little bit more, but, you know, so. That's true, and, and, and on top of it, 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 I mean, it's obviously his uncle's car. Here we had the great power, great responsibility. Yeah, see, at least this Spider-Man movie actually has that line. That is true, but, I mean, I don't think you can really blame the new one for not doing it, just because the. And I shouldn't even be talking about this because we'll, we'll get to that movie eventually. But I feel like if they would have just recreated the scene or just worked the line and some of them, people would have been even more critical about it doing the origin exactly all over again. But what I meant to say was we were talking about this whole movie. We haven't talked about Cliff Robertson, really classic actor. He was in the, I think it's called Charlie, the movie that was based on Flowers for Algernon. Man, great actor. Uh, his more recent roles, he played the president, Escape from L.A. and shit, man. A great actor, but I mean, unfortunately, I don't know what happened with, you know, guys get older and shit. He got some real bad hair plugs. His hair looks atrocious in this movie. It looks like it's cotton hair. It looks like a cotton candy just, like, jumbled into his head. And here we go to the wrestling scene, and speaking of hair plugs, we got the one, the only Randy Macho Man Savage with some real fake-ass hair going on there. I mean, could they... I guess it was probably the wrestling choice, whatever, but blacker than night, you... You have not seen a man's hair black as Randy Macho Man Savage in the scene. And then playing the announcer dude, we got the one, the only, Bruce Campbell. See, Bruce actually looks so good in this movie, 2002. This would have been the time, I think, to do Evil Dead 4. Spider-Man, he's doing the sign-up, and I, I could be crazy, but I think this woman at the at the, uh, 
the thing here, signing up to cheat. I think she's some like. It's Octavia, Octavia Spencer, right? That's for some reason I knew it wasn't her. I kept wanting. There's say a lot of like little cameos that pop up through this trilogy that you kind of forget about. I mean, Joel McHale pops up in the next one, and yeah, I kept wanting to say it was Viola Davis, but I knew that wasn't her. And you're right. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I, I it, there's something just like Macho Man is just ridiculous here, but I love this whole sequence. It's just so stupid. It's hard not to like. I, I mean, to be honest, this is like the comic booky like. It almost goes into Super Mario Brothers movie territory, but I'll agree with you, man. I like this shit, and and like we're saying, we got the chin, Bruce Campbell, and mm-hmm. not only that, man, but like he's looking good, man. Like I don't know, man. Like I, I, I mean, like it has nothing to do with this, but instead of an Evil Dead remake, I just wish they would have made another movie with Bruce. Yeah, well, hopefully they'll get there. We'll see if that ever actually comes about. Here comes Toby in a spray painted sweatshirt again. I don't have too much problem with this. Like, as a hater of this movie, I like except for this. I thought this was a little extraneous bit. Is he comes to the ring and like they have about four really hardened wrestler chicks with big fake boobs and stuff coming in and like they basically just like degrade him until he gets to the ring. Like, I really didn't understand what that was about. I don't know if you were still reading the comics at this time, but this costume he's wearing kind of feels like a takeoff on like the Ben Riley Clone Saga costume a little bit. Yeah, you're actually right about that. And, and granted, I was not in the um, the moment, you know, I wasn't like a reader of the comics at the time, but I, I found that clone saga kind of interesting. I mean, they definitely ran into the ground in the comic book, but I thought that could have really been a great basis if Raimi would have done a part four. Like, I would, like even if it just would have been Tobey Maguire playing the clone or whatever, I would have, I still, and like whatever, I guess we can maybe do it with the Mark Webb series, but I would love to see a movie with two Spider, you know, actually two Spider-Men in it. Because I actually love the the clone one, the Scarlet Spider, how he has that sweatshirt on and shit. I don't know, I just just find it interesting. I don't know, I think the problem is, I mean, like, that that story started off with potential, but it got so bad. It's kind of, it's considered like kind of a black eye in the comic community, so I'm not sure the the movies would go near it. I I mean, yeah, 100%, it is. Very, very hated. Very hated. I, I, I mean, I don't it's know. Like, with, it's up there with Maximum Carnage in terms of just pure fan revolt, you know. Yeah, I would say that probably the top three Spider-Man comic book, whatever, hated storylines is when they revealed his parents wasn't really dead, the Clone Saga, and like you said, probably either Maximum Carnage or when, uh, and maybe it's part of the Clone Saga, I don't, maybe people think of it, but there was a part where all of a sudden Norman Osborn was alive again. And they had a, like either a clone or something of or Gwen Stacy came back and he had a baby with her. Like the, to me, oh yeah, that was that was much later. That was in the Straczynski run. That is like one of the most controversial parts ever. And, and again, I don't want to be too hard, whatever, because I did not read the books. I kind of just read the, the the Cliff Notes versions on Wikipedia's and stuff. But like that, to me, as a Spider-Man fan, that sounds so horrible. I mean, just. That sounds like the, the bottom of the barrel. It was pretty bad. There was a lot of bad... Like, Spider-Man's interesting in that he's clearly, like, the greatest superhero in the Marvel Universe, but for years, they've had a really hard time, like, figuring this character out and getting good stories written with him. I mean, he's, he's suffered through a lot of, like, terrible storytelling. Yeah, and, like... I don't know, like, how, how did you feel... And I guess we'll get into it, because obviously people seeing the new movies and probably in general know a lot more, was Spider-Man's original girlfriend was Gwen Stacy goes on to get killed by Green Goblin, and then he later on he, he kind of goes after Mary Jane. How did you feel with them? And I understand like it's more of a movie decision than a comic book adaptation, because they didn't know if they were going to make all these movies, and, like sequels or whatever. 
But how did you feel with them just plugging right away Mary Jane into this? this yeah, it, movie? I don't know. It didn't really bother me too much. I guess I kind of assumed. I mean, I was you. We were smart enough at this time already to know that there was going to be sequels to follow, and I kind of felt like maybe they would just change it up and go in a different order. But it didn't bother me too much. I mean, at the time. You always kind of have to remember, like, when you look at these films, you look at what was going on in the comics at the time, because that's what they're trying to sell also. And he was all, you know, he was, if he wasn't married to Mary Jane already, they were definitely heading in that direction in the comics. So it seemed like the movies, it was probably easier for them to just plug her in, knowing that fans, like little kids who would then go to the store and buy a comic for the first time would see the character they know. True, true. Yeah, they're, I'm pretty sure they're definitely married, because I quit reading around maybe 93, 94 and I'm pretty sure they're already married. Because I remember they were always living in shitty apartments, and then Mary Jane was like, I'm a yeah. model, I shouldn't be. But, but it might have been, I think they were separated maybe when this movie came out, and that's and then they they brought her back right around this time. She oh, finally came back to there him. There you go. Yeah, so here we had the scene with the, I don't know, man, like I feel like this is almost like some international, looks like something Luke Besson would do, this this clown-headed robber that came in. <laughs> really bizarre. Like, like I don't know why. When I, I remember back in the day when I saw like the first stills of this film, I... For some reason, I thought that was Tommy Dreamer. <laughs> I have no idea why I thought that. I can see it. I, I, but Dreamer has more like a, like a curly hair, where this guy just had like a blown-out, bleached-out, spiked yeah. haircut. But, uh, but, I mean, this guy's a complete clown and whatever. And, um, you know, Spider-Man. And I'll give him credit. They did stick with the comic book and stuff. And, and I actually agree. Like, when I watched this movie the other day, I, I see Parker's side of it. Like, why would you stop that robber when this guy just fucked you out of your right. wrestling money? This is all, I mean, I mean, you know, we've we've seen a lot of superhero origin movies over the past, you know, decade or so. And this is one of the ones that I, comes closest to just actually nailing the story as it was in that original comic, you know. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I could, I could call it a criticism, but it don't really bother me. But, like, when you watch this movie, it's so simple. Like, the, the way the scenes are laid out. I mean, it's like screenwriting one-on-one. You can say, okay, this is the scene where he's getting sympathy with Mary Jane. This is the scene where they're establishing him with Ben and, and Aunt May. And this is the scene. But, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with it. To me, like, I'll really get nasty when we get into the second half of this movie. Because, like, up until this point, I, th- I actually think it's, it's, it's just fine. It's, it's okay. Like aside from the little McGuire performance problems and shit, but but here we go. He's like, oh man, like that was the robber, that was whatever. He's running down the alleyways, and uh, I don't know, man. Just aside from the robber being so clown headed, <laughs> whatever. Like like I was fine with it. Here we're treated to some more shitty CGI, unfortunately though. Climbing up the wall, and then, I don't know, man. This looks like something out of Odd World Munch's Odyssey or something. <laughs> it looks like a video game cutscene. It, re- it really does, and, and I have to say, man, like this, like I guess it don't matter or whatever. But I'm pretty sure the majority, according to the credits, uh, a big reason I think why Sony took this on was, and I and and forgive me, I don't know if they quit or whatever. But at the time, Sony uh, started Sony, like uh, I, th- I think it's called ImageWorks, but it's basically a, a, a really bootleg ILM company. So they really thought like they were going to like. You know, basically a cost-cutting move to have their own in-house CGI, you know, company and shit. And I really think that's that's what hurt this movie a lot, man, was to use that Sony special effects company. Because, like, mm. I, I, I mean, granted, this is 2002. CGI wasn't the best and still is not the best. But it, they should have shut out the money for ILM. Because especially, like, I don't know the hard facts, but, like, I read that this movie was originally budgeted at $70 million, then it ballooned to 100 And then I read another figure that... The, it actually went way over budget and ended up with 140 million. 
And I gotta say, for 140 million dollars in 2002, this is a piss poor CGI. Like I mean, what I read was 100 million, but then 30 million to promote it. But I mean, yeah, I mean, either way, I mean, it's it is bad CGI. Look, this is a conversation worth having. Um, it, what, when you look back on films like this that have the poor CGI from this time period, though, how forgiving are you? I mean, we talk about like this is a conversation Bird and I have had about you know like when you look at a Harryhausen film, it's not like those special effects hold up. But if you're thinking about it, that you're kind of the film has lost you anyways. So I mean, are you forgiving towards bad early CGI at all? To be honest, not really. Just for the simple fact that it depends on what the movie is, depends on what the budget level is. I'm more forgiving of bad CGI now if the budget level's low. But, like, I don't know, man. Like, to me, like, they had the time. They had the money. This movie was clearly in post-production for at least a year. Like, how could Sam Raimi walk into the editing bay? Because, you know, they do CGI in steps. They add all the little lighting effects. Like, it it is a work in progress. And and there is a real art form to it. I don't want to just, like, you know, bitch about CGI or whatever. But, yeah, I'm not that forgiving if the budget was high. Because, I mean, you know, like, Jurassic Park was kind of the boom of CGI. That was 93 and while there is a lot of effects in that movie that look phony, like for early, early CGI, like it's not bad. But at this point, where 2002 compared to 93, CGI was not really in its infancy anymore. They should have done better. So, yeah. Like, I always kind of look at it like what the effect is, though, and if it was something that was being tried for the first time. So, I mean, it's, you know, it was one thing to create dinosaurs in CGI, and then, but then to create a human that has to move realistically is like a different thing, you know? And that's why. I'm actually even a little forgiving towards the Burly Brawl and Matrix 2. I mean, nothing like that had been attempted before, so you kind of like I kind of forgive sometimes, but Well, I mean, I'm I'm no computer whiz like whatever, but yeah, I mean, the Burly Brawl, you're you're talking about something that for the most part at some point in time that goes from being a set and physical actors to being a completely CGI environment with completely C- like and that's the thing with computers in general. Like, the more action, the more characters you have on the screen, the harder it is for computers to render and keep up and all that shit. So this was just, like, a guy just climbing up a wall by himself. They should have done better. But the CGI debate, I don't know if you noticed, and I don't think you have, Trev, but I watched this the other day, and and going into the Spider-Man 3 rewriting history controversy, there actually is a point here where, where... and, I, and maybe this was some George Lucas shit, where maybe Sony went in and put this back in. I'm not too sure. But before he falls out the window, the robber actually does say, I didn't do it. But then it makes me feel like, like which if you watch part three, for people who don't know, it turns out that, it, it, yeah, it wasn't this dude who killed Uncle Ben. It was a Sandman. But right after he says, I didn't do it, which sounds like a dubbed-in line, all of a sudden he points the gun up to Spider-Man's face and laughs. So I'm just like... Seems like he is the killer, but then he says he didn't do it, but then he tries to shoot him, so, like, I'm curious I mean, if there was some George Lucas scene going on there. I mean, I just always took it, he says I didn't do it, because that's what you would say to try and get this freak in a spider sweatshirt off you, you know? True. But it, I don't know, I don't. I really don't think scene. they had already planned that out. Oh, I know for a fact they didn't plan it out, and that's I why... God, I, I hope they didn't. <laughs> that, that, that's why I have such a big problem with part three, it just, yeah. like, you know, it's like, move the story forward, don't constantly go back, you know what I mean? So, yeah, now the CGI though, that's something. That, I mean, I mean, I don't know if this film was in like a rush to get to a release date. That's it's certainly something I know. Like, for, I, you know, as much as I love this film, I do agree that one of the big complaints is that, especially in the web swinging scenes, Spider-Man just looks like he has like no weight to him. It's not physically accurate at all, and that's something they they definitely improved in the in the next film. Well, well I have to say, there's like a little of that montage at the end where it's actually him in the spider suit swimming around, like. 
it's clearly CGI and it's clearly 2002 CGI, but I don't have a problem with the the kind of the outro montage scene of him swimming around. Like, and that's what they use in all the trailers, of course. But then you see the actual movie, and it's just what they did show. Oh, th- th- this is one thing. I guess I'm sorry, man. I gotta pick this apart here. There's like this 30, se- like literally a 30 second scene subplot of the Green Goblin getting revenge on the military contractors who stole his military contract and shit. There's a guy in what seems to be some kind of Tony Stark kind of inspired, Robotech kind of inspired cockpit thing flying around. Like this is clearly what the army was going to go with instead of the Green Goblin program. And then the Green Goblin just flies in, <laughs> blows everybody up. <laughs> And then that's the end, and then it cuts to a, a high school graduation scene. <laughs> now come on, that was a cool dissolve. Don't don't take away the credit here. Yeah, what what, what Trev's talking about for people not following around at home, like basically a building blows up and you see all the shrapnel flying to the air, and that 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 does do a dissolve into the caps and gowns flying. But I just find that so bizarre, like like in terms of like when you go to cut a movie down, and maybe they were in a rush and they weren't thinking, but when you go to make a movie be as lean and mean as possible. Like okay, we we had the 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 kind of push for him to try the the goblin shit himself was was you know was because he was rejected by the army. But to go back and just blow those guys up, and it's not even that he went back for revenge, but make it a cool scene, make it a good three minute action scene where we can see what the goblin can do and how he can destroy everybody. But just to fly in and again with the corny ass, it, it, I swear because especially when you see how kind of witchy the green outfit is that they made him. I think that had a big plot, you know, part of why Defoe just went with this corny-ass depiction of the character, just constantly cackling. <laughs> like, I mean, it's so grating to see a two-hour movie where the, you know, the main villain, like, he doesn't even seem like a character. He just seems like somebody who just flies around and cackles into the night and shit. I mean, knowing Defoe, I kind of feel like that's the performance he would have given no matter what. But And he fought for this role. I don't know if you read about that, but he wasn't even considered for it. And somehow the script got across his desk and he had to go to Raimi and he really wanted this part. And then he kept on bugging Raimi to come back in the sequels, which is why we see him keep popping up. That That is interesting. I, I didn't know so much that. I did know that for a long time, Kate, Nicolas Cage was hounding and hounding for the role. And I, don't I mean, know. he hounds for He wants to be in every comic book movie. Yeah, but this, I mean, this, like, let's be, like, like this is before, this is when Nicolas Cage was still considered Nicolas Cage before he became Ridiculous Cage, if you know what I mean. So he was a more serious actor. I, I really think, like, he just saw that shitty-ass design, and then he was like, oh, no thanks, you can give this role to somebody else. Like, <laughs> I don't know, that's assuming Nicolas Cage has a level of taste that I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to go that far. Well... I don't know, like... I mean, you saw that Superman costume that he was apparently fine with wearing. The Superman costume, I don't... I, it was ridiculous, but then when you put on top of it his Bangkok dangerous haircut that he wanted to wear as Superman. But you know what, man? Like, honestly, I mean, that mo- if they would have actually made that movie, that would have been a, a cult classic, man. We still would be talking about that movie. Like, oh, years. and the way that Batman and Robin is now, you know? Well... I would ha- I would like to think that Tim Burton, even when he's doing like a studio hack job, is still better than Joel Schumacher. But yeah. So getting back into the story now, the funeral, the graduation, you know, Spider Spider Man. I'm probably just going to keep calling Spider Man, not calling Peter Parker. But Spider Man's graduated high school. 
but it was bittersweet because his grandfather died and shit. And not his grandfather, his uncle, his uncle Ben died, and it's just like, you know, what's he going to do with his life? And I feel like, this, like, especially watching this movie, he pulls out the picture of Spider Man, and like, this is basically where he makes the Spider Spider Man suit, but you don't really see it. You just see that it goes from a sketch to a full blown suit. Which a lot of people picked apart the new new movie were saying like a high school kid couldn't make a suit. But at least in the new movie they showed like the materials he was making the suit. This it just completely cuts to he's just flying around as Spider Man. It's interesting because I read that like one of the main reasons Raimi changed the web shooters to organic is he felt like you like you said, he felt like audiences might not buy that this kid would have enough know how and the materials and the time to make the web shooters, but then he just kinda glosses over how did he make the suit, you know? Yeah, and like I mean, this just being a nerdy Spider-Man fan, whatever. Like, I gotta say, the original concept of the web shooters, it was very simple. Basically, all it was, was that, because it was going with this more storyline that Peter Parker was a young genius scientist, was he found this adhesive formula that was supposed to be, like, the super glue that his his father was working on, and he basically solved the, you know, the riddle, the equation, and he, he made the glue where it was super, super strong, but it dissolved after 30 minutes and shit. So Jim like, Norton cameo? Yeah, I was going to say, very bizarre. Jim Norton, if you don't know, he's a stand-up comedian, been in a lot of movies, TV shows, and small parts. But he's actually most known for going on like national radio shows and admitting that he gets hookers off Craigslist. <laughs> Here's Lucy Lawless as a punk. <laughs> oh, that was her, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, Raimi was producing Xena around this time, so... You know, that completely makes sense, but when I, every time I watch that scene, when I watch the other day, all I could, like, notice was that like, she was holding a cigarette, like, right up in the frame, and I found that very, like, strange for, like, these movies. Oh, okay, I gotta point this out. Look at the, look at the, uh, TV monitors that are next to, uh, J. Jonah Jameson's desk, the first scene where we see, uh, Simmons, uh, J.K. Simmons as the thing. There's an AIDS report on the TV, and I found this bizarre, you gotta look close, but I have a big screen. It says, like, U.S. age records. And if you look at it, it says, like, 86% homosexual men. <laughs> now, now, I saw that, and it never, ever crossed my mind till that. I was like, is this movie supposed to take place in, like, 1982? Because, like, I mean, not that, you know, it's just the facts. Like, when AIDS first started, everybody thought it was, like, only gay people got it or whatever. But, like... Why in 2002 would this news report be on? Like, claiming yeah, and even if you were trying to date the film, why would that be the, the news footage you I would s- go to? But, I, I mean, I don't know, like, like, I'm not saying, like, it's not a topic, like, whatever, but, like, why would you put, like, an AIDS topic in, like, a Spider-Man? Like, it's just That's what weird. I'm saying, yeah, it's like, bizarre. I mean, there's a lot of better, there's a lot of other things you could pull from the 80s to put on the TV instead if you were trying to date the film. Very, I just find that very bizarre, and, and to be honest, I only saw that the other day because I got this newer big TV so I could see it real good. I just found that bizarre. I mean, it probably was just like a B-roll VHS tape that they got from somewhere, you know what I mean? But now we, we talked over, we, we pointed out the Norton and the Lawless cameos, but that whole like montage there of like Spider-Man's first days where we're seeing the, the spinning newspapers and the, the citizens talking, that was a very Raimi moment. I mean, that's definitely like, this is where it's again starting to really feel like a Sam Raimi film, and I even sometimes have like Darkman flashbacks watching some of this stuff. It is, man, and I gotta say, I'm a Darkman fan, I still like it, everything... But I watched it a few years ago in high def. Like, talk about uh, it, it, I would say this movie is more like Darkman than any other movies made. Darkman is so like bizarre, clown house, fun house. Like, yeah. The shots and like it's actually edited. I won't say poorly, but it's edited in a very old style where like shots are a little too long. Because I mean, obviously they were editing it like on a Steambeck or whatever, and like 
just, it's just weird, like, that he was trying to basically make a colorful comic book movie in 1990, and then 12 years later, he would go on to do it again. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure you probably know as a Raimi fan, the only reason he did Darkman is because he couldn't get Batman, so he kind of had to just create his own hero. I did, actually, I, I've never read that it was directly Batman, but I heard that he wanted to do just a superhero film so bad, but that, like, the rights, like, acquiring the rights for the studio was, mm-hmm. like, so cost prohibitive, yeah, that is why he came up with it. And oddly enough, a few years later, Marvel would actually publish a Darkman comic book, although they never actually introduced him into their main continuity. Right. It, it, I mean, I don't know, it was, it was different, but uh, I remember there was a time, or like early 90s, there was a Marvel comic called Sleepwalker that reminded yeah. me a lot of, of Darkman. The character, the power is not so much, but just the, the tone of it, it was very bizarre. And this is a really long scene of two people just standing in the street talking for like a modern audience, you know? And for a modern city, man, these, these people should be getting run the fuck over. Because right? <laughs> <laughs> like basically, if you're not following home, like, what happens is Peter's walking by a diner, he sees Mary Jane run out, and he's like, oh, Mary Jane, thinking, you know, she just got breakfast or whatever. But it turns out she was uh, the waitress, because her greasy, again, this movie, Mary Jane is always getting chased by greasy men and wife beater t-shirts, telling her that she's worthless. Like, the slob cook comes out and says, hey, blah, blah, blah. So, like, then he catches on, like, oh, she was actually working there. But she's on her way to an audition, which... I, don't, I can't remember if MJ in the comics was an actress or not. I just always remember her as being a model. Yeah, she was a model turned actress, as they, as okay. most of them end up doing, you know. So It's yeah. one of the more realistic elements of the comic books, I suppose. Like, uh, they're clearly modern her character after Stella Warren or whatever from Planet <laughs> <laughs> And I gotta say, man, and I guess, obviously, you're not the... We hear a lot about Dr. Connors. That's uh, that's where Peter Parker works in this. But I don't think we actually ever see Dylan Baker as Dr. Connors. In this no, movie. not till the next one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I, this is this confused the hell out of me. And obviously, you you, you can't answer this because you haven't watched it in a while, Trev. But like, was he was he living with Harry in this apartment? Like, because they all have like Thanksgiving dinner in this apartment, and Aunt May's there. But like. When I first watched it, I thought this scene he was just was visiting Harry, and then later it seemed like he lived there. So yeah, um, no, I always, I always took it that they were roommates. They were okay. living here together. They moved out to the city together. Now let's talk about that. What? How do you? I know. Okay, you're not the biggest fan of this film, but how do you feel about like the kind of accelerated storytelling that goes on in this movie? Like, okay, so like the new one, Amazing Spider-Man, decided to keep everything in high school, but here we have they blew through the high school stuff in the first act, and now they've already moved into the city, and they brought in the Daily Bugle and. It just seems like it's moving things along very fast in a way that you don't see a lot in these in these films anymore. Well, now no, because because well, I am critical of it, and I'm, I'm not. Let me explain. Like when I watched this the other day, I, I gotta be honest. I thought this was very slop, and I understood that there was probably again more shitty CGI stopping some armor car robbery. But I took it that this was probably a two and a half hour movie that the studio mandated to get cut down. And like I don't mind the timeline of him of them jumping forward to him graduating high school to being Spider Man and working for the Bugle. What I mind is like I said, like I just felt the storytelling was because it probably was accelerated in the editing room. I felt it was very sloppy. Like, like you know, up until when Uncle Ben got killed, like I wasn't too critical of this movie. By this point in the movie, Trev, like it's just like to me these scenes are just washing over me, man. Like I I have no real. Uh, positive or negative emotional response to it it just kind of seems like filler shit like you know what i mean it's just like it's kind of like well he he did this in the comic book so we got to work it all into this one movie because like we don't know if we'll make a sequel and 
to me, this is where the movie starts getting shaky for me. I feel heartbroken that you're saying this over a scene with J. Jonah Jameson, who we haven't really even mentioned yet, but I mean, if there's like a definite bright spot in these films, I would say it's J.K. Simmons. I mean, this this performance is great. It is good. Like, I mean, you, I guess somebody... Could, I mean, again, you have to accept the cartoony nature of it. But Yeah, I was going to say, people might be critical that like, hey, it's just... Because, I mean, it's like... It, I don't know, man. It, it's like classic... You know, Laurel and Hardy type of slapstick humor. He's like, hey, kid, boy, I got the scar chomping and slapping them and throwing them out the door and shit. I don't have a problem with it too much because at this point, like, this movie has settled in to, you know, being very, like, cartoony or whatever. But, like I said, at the same time, like, it just isn't adding up to much for me, man. Like, it's just kind of like all jumbled mess storytelling, you know, at this point. You also get uh, Ted Raimi in those scenes, though, so that's good. If again, if you're a Sam Raimi fan, another nice little Raimi Easter egg for you. Yeah, man, like Ted Raimi, um, I always love his cameos. Uh, I love it in the movie Hard Target, where the homeless guy begs him for help, <laughs> and he's such a Ted Raimi, such a, a yuppie dick. He just pushes the guy away, and then the guy gets shot. <laughs> I always think of him as like the punk that gets killed by Candyman, the beginning of Candyman. Oh, I haven't seen it in a while. Totally forgot. Basically, we, we get treated to a uh, just more story just being crammed down your throat over and over and over. Um, basically, this guy looks familiar, but I don't know what I'm recognizing him from. I, I was about to say, and I found this very strange, and obviously this is just like whatever, but when I watched this the other day, this, uh, I think the guy you're talking to, maybe it's not, but there's like a little uh, older guy with a shaved head. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, he's in a wheelchair. He looks like the dude who was trying out the goblin glider in the first scene. So I'm like, but, but I don't think it's him, but it like maybe he got fucked up flying around on that goblin glider ended up in the wheelchair. <laughs> I don't know. But it really looks like the dude, like face-wise and shit. So Norman Osborn's getting kicked out of Oscorp, which, I don't know, man. Like Again, just like, and this goes down to, I really do think, probably not so much Sam Raimi, but... But the studio wanted to make this as much like Batman 89 as possible. And I just feel like like a lot of this is just like, it's really just taken out of the book of Batman 89 in terms of like, like I don't know, like, 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 you know how Batman 89, like the Joker made the Batman, the Batman made the Joker. We got the same shit here. Oscorp made Spider-Man and, and like, not really Spider-Man made the Goblin, but it gets really tied into them, like, so close, like, they can miss the storyline, and I think they're just trying to copy it, they're like, well, the Joker died in the Batman movie, so Green Goblin's gotta die, and, I, and like, to me, that was, to me, this franchise, as, in terms of, like, long-term prospects, was dead as soon as they followed that model, because, like, Spider-Man, you really need the villains to keep coming back time and time again to build up the rivalry and, the, you know, the villainy and shit. What's interesting is that Raimi did eventually go on record as saying he was building to the Sinister Six, so I, I, you know, I wonder what his plans were in terms of, I think there probably might have been some resurrections or something. I mean, these are comic book movies after all, so. True. Uh, of course, now here we come to what we've all really come to see is the Macy Gray concert. The Ma there's a Macy Gray concert going on. The whole city is, like, th there's a guy back there in Lederhosen and walk by the camera real quick. I, I don't know what kind of, like, it looks like some kind of ethnic heritage, like, festival, whatever, but it, it makes no sense. But, I, but again, Batman 89, dude, like, remember the Joker put on a fray with all them balloons? Again, mm -hmm. we have a sequence of a lot of balloons going 
<laughs> and by the way, speaking of bad CGI, these these balloons that are floating in the sky are such bad CGI. I just hope uh, there's a nice cup of noodle ad right there. Um, well, we're getting a lot of product placement actually in this whole sequence. But... Not only that, like I couldn't tell if this was supposed to be Times Square or what, because it looks like Times Square, but then but then like this balcony that they're on in the buildings they're 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 standing like against like looks so fake like it looks like a back lot. Yeah, well, I mean, and I don't know if they're staying true to any real geography of New York in this film anyways, so. Because I, I mean, granted, like, I'm not a New York expert, but this looks, I mean, from 2002, like, Times Square looked way different. It, it looked like a lot more plasticky mm. and kind of, like, metally, where this is kind of just, like, yeah. It's like they're trying to, like, do kind of, like, what Schumacher and Burton did in the Batman films and make, like, this, like, gothic city. And I gotta say, man, this is where the movie 100%, because again, like, I know I keep bitching about it, and people probably tired of hearing me say, oh, dude fell out of his wheelchair. But, uh, Goblin just sweeps down and cackles and cackles. Stan Lee saves the little girl in Lederhosen. Like, this, this is some whack-ass shit here. I'm sorry. I mean, I don't really, I, I guess I don't get what your problem is with this here. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it, I mean, it's an introductory action scene. I mean, but, I don't know what you like there's no there's no like detail in it like like as far as the action scene as far as pieces building up climaxing it's just swoop down cackle throw some bombs and watch this part this is the best part he throws an x-ray bomb and everybody turns into a cgi skeleton this is a this is horrible dude this is just like cheese on top and there actually is one action scene i like in this movie later on but man this is so bad and, and like his lines and he oh look it's spider-man and then, like, the goblin falls, like, a million feet into a, a tent. Like, this is just... <laughs> and then the battle, like, has to incorporate these balloons somehow, like... I don't know. Now, those moments, like, okay, so those moments, like, where the, the woman yells, like, look out there, Spider-Man, and kind of the, those earnest character moments where, like, we see the, the New Yorkers talking to the camera about Spider-Man, things like that. Do you have any, like... I mean, does that bother you a lot, or do you not mind that kind of stuff? I mean, that's fine. Like, like here, like again, the cops try to stop the goblin, and it's just like it's just a stunt man in a suit. There's like no, and, and again, like we haven't talked about it too much, but in like, I mean, I know people are sick of this joke, but he really does look like the green, like Power Ranger and shit. Oh yeah, and he yeah. wears a he wears not really a mask but a helmet, and it's just like they they tried to like do close-ups where you can see the foe like through like this mesh that's in the mouth and it's just like it just was the wrong call to go with this helmet because again like all he can do and it's not even defoe most of the time in the suit i don't think because you can kind of tell when it's defoe the body language you can tell when it's just a stuntman punching people but like it's just cackling and cackling in spite like this is a horrible i'm sorry Trev. this is a horrible spider-man where he's bouncing on these balloons and they're basically just grabbing each other and flying through there. Like, this is so corny. See, now the close-up stuff like this, where it's actually people in the suits and it's not the CGI stunt doubles, I'm fine with this. It, and it's not very exciting. It's not very imaginative. But, I, like, I'm fine with it. It's when mm -hmm. it just becomes, like, a long shot of a CGI blur flying around. And, like, that's the problem I had with the Man of Steel climax. Again, Gro Goblin gets a face full of fucking spider jizz and flies away. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, you're not going to hear me like debate that the CGI is terrific, or and you're certainly not going to hear me debate that the costume on Green Goblin is good. I've never really liked it that much. But I mean, to me, these scenes are fun. I mean, this is like a, this is basically like a lightweight superhero film. It's not, 
it's not taking itself very seriously. It doesn't have a lot of gravity to it. It's not trying to be as somber as like the Nolan films are or Man of Steel is. It's just all kind of, it, it is weighty and it feels like it is more made for like a younger audience. I mean, I'll, I'll go, I'll, it's like, I can't debate that, but that's my problem with it, man. It's just like, I just don't find it to be very that, like, that well done at all. Like, you got these moments of piss poor CGI. You, you got this villain who, for, I mean, he's basically been, like, relegated to, like, a Michael Myers thing. He has a mask on that's, like, shows no emotion, no nothing. Like, like what? That is. That's a really. I, I am surprised they made that call, just because these are like throughout this whole series, and even Mark Webb, you can tell he's not immune to it either. Is that they have this desire to always pull the mask off of Spider-Man because they feel yeah. like you can't really get the character when you can't see his face, and yet for their main villain in the first film, they made it so you can't have any kind of emotion or anything. That that is true, and 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 you and they do follow that with McGuire. Like there's an explosion where his, his mask gets ripped off, and then there's like the fight where his like. That's usually a studio desire, from what I understand, to like, hey, we paid this actor, we want to see him act, you know what I mean? Which I find corny. It's like the same reason Michael Bay like changed the Optimus Prime so he had a mouth, because they, they need that CGI mouth acting to sell it to the audience or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, but in terms of the Goblin, because Spider-Man, like his quips and his body language, and we, we spent an entire movie with Tobey Maguire... And, like, he's hardly ever Spider-Man through this running time. In a two-hour movie, he's maybe Spider-Man a total of 15 minutes. But, like, we kind of get McGuire's thing because we're falling through the whole movie. The Goblin, like, we get that he's crazy. Like, we get that he cackles. And, like, that's all he does. He just cackles with that fucking mask on. Like, it just, like they screwed themselves when they went with that Power Ranger helmet because it just totally, like, robbed the character of any emotion or anything. One thing I will say, though, is you just said he's, he's only Spider-Man for about 15 minutes, and I don't know how much of a criticism you meant that as, but I will say that if there's one superhero series where you can get away with that, it is Spider-Man, because, I mean, that's one of the like greatest things about the character, I'm sure you'd agree, is that he's one of the rare superheroes where his alter ego is actually a little almost more interesting. I mean, when you're watching Batman, you really just want to see Batman. You don't care too much about Bruce Wayne. You don't care too much about Clark Kent, but Peter Parker is a very likable, interesting character. I mean, I agree with you. Like, to be honest, you know, all comic books, subplots, whatever's, like, they're all, they're all very soap opera-ish. But I gotta say, I think, just as a comic book, I think the Spider-Man just had some of the better writing in terms of the subplots, like... Well, he's the most relatable hero, too. I think that's why he ended up becoming the signature char- character of Marvel, is, I mean, everything he goes through, everyone remembers, you know, you remember being picked on in high school, or feeling you're, like you don't fit in, then you get to the big city, and... You're trying to find your place in the world. I mean, he's not a millionaire who can just solve all his problems with money. He's not an alien who has everything that can do everything. So that's always made Spider-Man great, and that's why these are allowed to be a little, like, a little more character-driven than other superhero films. Yeah, and I, I feel like, like, like the whole secret identity thing. I think he, I think the Spider-Man comics nailed it the best because he constantly was protecting his identity and was here. But but like a lot of the movies, they just like. Like, Superman transforms into Superman, and then, like, whatever. Like, there's no, like, you know, it's like, oh, Clark Kent's got glasses on. We can't tell it's Superman. But it's like, with him, like, you like you just buy it with the other ones that they're never going to get their super, you know, their identity found out, where Spider-Man was constantly in jeopardy of, like, somebody finding out his identity. Mm-hmm. I will say, man, this is one of the best scenes of the movie, even though it kind of doesn't make sense, but where Defoe does the thing in the mirror, where, like, basically the Green Goblin's talking to him, 
but but what as far as his acting this is his best acting moment in the entire movie but it's also flawed because like he should be looking in the mirror with the goblin talking to him but because goblin again and i know i sound like an asshole because goblin has a motorcycle helmet for a face they had to just put the foe where it's like it doesn't make any sense because on one side of the mirror is norman osborne and like it's not that he's an evil version of norman osborne he's the green goblin like so it just totally didn't make sense to me story wise that he'd be talking to himself in his. Past. I'm glad. I'm actually glad they did it that way. I mean, I like because it shows that it is it is a split personality of his, and it's not like he puts on a costume and becomes this other thing. I mean, they've even like I, I don't. You don't still read comics, do you? No, I, I like I briefly got back into it. I want to say ten years ago, and it got right back out. It's they, Osborne is probably like the biggest villain in the Marvel universe right now, and it's been a long time since he's put on the Green Goblin costume. But they do play up that aspect of him, where he still has this kind of he hears voices talk to him, and he's just this insane guy. And I like that. I like that it's just a guy who's who's mentally screwed up. But it, if I, I feel like if it was the comic, it would have been the Goblin talking to him. You know what I mean? Because the Goblin has an expressive face, where this is just. The, and by the way, you can tell the mechanical effects here. Getting back to the scene specific stuff, Goblin bursts into Jonah Jameson's uh, office here, and he, he bursts through the wall, and you could tell this stunt man is hanging on for his dear life <laughs> when that glider busted that phony wall. Like it kind of does like a jerking motion. It looks like something you would see at Universal Studios, like some mechanical element. And you could tell the guys just trying not to fucking fall off. Now there we had one of the, there we had one of the first moments where you can see Defoe's mouth through the mask, and that's like that's even like more disturbing looking. That's just like it so is. bizarre that I don't like it. I, I have to say I like it though because just because like I mean it's when I saw the movie I was like what you can see the dude's mouth like but looking back on it like they had to get Defoe's performance is so good but they had to it was so hampered by that mask they had to do something to let you see him you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But it, it, I just, again, man, like, I won't talk about his mask anymore because it's stupid. Like, here he has the little eye things pop open. You can see his eyes. Like, I feel like they went with that bad choice of the mask, and then they did everything they could to try to make the mask work, but it ultimately never did. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's telling that they never, like, they never took anything from this and put it into the comics. I mean, they Green Goblin always stayed the same. Because you see a lot of that after the X-Men films, they actually put the X-Men into the the leather costumes in the comics, but here they knew better. I mean, yeah, they knew this was totally shit, and I and I think it was I think it was the filmmakers, and really not even so much Raimi. I think the studio uh, was just like this was a last minute choice. Like they were trying all these concepts, and the studio probably wouldn't agree on any of them, so they're like, "Fuck it!" Like we got probably a week left before we shoot. We got to make something, so they had to go with this thing. Well, we talked about how, like, the, the actual Green Goblin, like, the way it looks in the comics and that, that test footage might have looked goofy. But, I mean, I think we would both agree that if there's one director who probably wouldn't have a problem with it being goofy, it is Raimi. So I'm sure it was some oh, higher-ups coming down on him. And if you look at the Goblin, the facial whatever is very uh, similar to a lot of, like, the kind of witchy creatures you would see in the Evil Dead movies. So, like, I think Raimi, if anybody knows that they could have done a makeup... And then with the lighting and the cinematography, they could have made it work. But I think the studio was just too fucking scared. Mm-hmm. And talking about how, how shitty Defoe is in that costume, that, right, it just ended. But that, that was the only scene after he gasses Spider-Man where I felt like we got a little bit of performance through that bad suit, the way he was leaning on the, like, the top of the roof and talking to yeah. him. Like, he, like that, that suit is just so 
constrictive, but he was able to get some kind of body language and performance going with it. You know what's interesting now is you probably noticed this the other night when you watch it, but I'm seeing now that this is one of those you don't see this at all anymore. Really, is this film has like some edits that feel like commercial breaks, which you never see in like theatrical films anymore. Yeah, they kind of fade to black and then they come up out of black for the next. Yeah, year. I, I think probably the reason they did that is like usually why you would do that besides obviously a commercial break, like you say. I think it's kind of like there were some scenes in between that got cut out, and they were like, "Well, we're skipping ahead," so it's kind of like. It, it, in a weird way, a film language way, it kind of denotes that, okay, like, we're moving on, you know what I mean? Like, we don't have, like, a real, like, cohesive scene to cut to to continue the story of what you're watching, so it's kind of like, it is like a commercial break of, like, okay, now we're moving on to a different story beat. And basically, the story beat is just randomly, he runs into Mary Jane and the thing, and then Mary Jane walks away and almost gets gang raped. That's, that's the story beat that we went this is a story beat, but this moment with him talking, I mean, again, this is another, uh, just them hanging out in the street talking, but I do have to say, I, I really like this relationship in this film. I think it's a really, they're both charming, it's a, a winning story, like, to me. I mean, we could talk about what they did to the Mary Jane character in the sequels, maybe that's not a good idea, but in this film, at least, I think they really nailed this relationship, and it's one of the better, like, relationships you see in a comic book film. I really root, you root for these two, I think, in this movie. I, 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 I gotta say, man, like, watching this again, I was kind of like, well, what if I watch this and I don't really hate it anymore? It's gonna be hard for me to sit there and, like, do this commentary. But I gotta say, I watched this movie again two days ago. I hated it more than ever. It reminded me of why I hated it the first time. But I will say, I other than, like, it, they they made it a little weird and bizarre that she was his next-door neighbor, I thought she I thought she was, like, the one person who, like, kind of walked out of this without embarrassing themselves. You know what I mean? I thought she was fine. And, and like, mm -hmm. this, well, we'll get to why it is, but this is actually my favorite scene in the entire movie right here. Is it because of the wet shirt? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, like, right there, like, when people are, like, like kind of, like, poo-pooing uh, Kirsten Dunst, I'm like, okay, like, once you lock somebody into a contract for movies, and this right here, man, this is what, like, let's, let's be honest, man. Hollywood is, a, for the most part, a male-driven place. And right here, like, no woman director would ever film this scene. Her shirt is so see-through, and her nipples are so hard. This is exactly why they casted her, man. It's yeah. crazy, too. Like, I remember at the time seeing this in the theater. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, you don't you, like, expect to see something like that in a Spider-Man film. It feels just so exploitative suddenly. Yeah, I mean, like, I hope if some women listen to this, they're not offended or whatever. But, like, like I am, like, a, a, a nipple shot connoisseur of movies just because it's interesting, like, continuity sometimes some scenes the nipple be hard then it'll be soft so like i mean like this always caught my attention but this is beyond like a hard nipple shot like poking through a shirt you can i swear you can about see her nipples like the the, the whole outline of them and everything like, well you're watching it on blu-ray so i'll have to, I'll have to yeah. take your word for it <laughs> i mean it's pretty detailed but it's just like i cannot believe like a studio especially because like she had a jacket on and they ripped it off just to do a wet t-shirt scene like i cannot believe for is like you said, like Raimi kind of did aim this at a child audience. I do believe. Mm -hmm. Can't believe this ever made it into that. Like it's just so like, and that's yeah. that's my thing is sometimes you kind of you kind of like get worse stuff in a PG thirteen movie, like slightly more sleazy, preferred and stuff than you will in an R rated movie. Because if it's an R rated movie, like they just would have got it over with and done like a two second boob shot. But like here, you just get like the glorious like wet nipples and like. Call me corny, whatever, but I thought this was a, an inventive scene. Like, 
Oh yeah, I was gonna say this is a. I was hoping you were not gonna rip on this because this mm. is a great moment. I mean, this is a iconic image, you know. And to be honest, that kind of is the moment that people rip on. But like, no, nah, like, like a spider. That last shot of her just like catching all the rain in the face. That was slow motion. Yeah. That was bizarre, dude. That was like a. Yeah, that was strange. That I was like. A, I don't remember. I don't know if that, they maybe they didn't have like an in shot to end the scene, but. It, it almost looked like a weird Bukaki shot. Like, it was slightly strange. Like, it was weird. I don't know, like, if you're going to know what I'm talking about, but for a moment I started to have flashbacks of, like, the crow. Like, that's how that moment kind of felt. Like, something yeah, that would be, be in that. Yeah, because it had that very, like, looked like it was shot on a studio backlot, fake alleyway, very dark, the rain machines pumping. Like, yeah. it, it, it did have that ambiance. Whereas most of this movie, like we see now, it's... it's and, I, and I do think that is a positive Raimi, was he wanted to make a brightly lit... Like, he wanted to separate Spider-Man from Batman, I feel like. He wanted to make a movie where a lot of action happened during the daytime. Mm-hmm. And I gotta yeah, say- I, do still, I do still watch this film and wish that more superhero films looked like this. I mean, we talked about, like, color correction earlier and draining the color out. And, I mean, even, like, Amazing Spider-Man, I felt like it was trying a little too hard to look like every other superhero movie has come out. And I just, I do still love how bright and colorful this series is. I do like how bright and colorful, but what we were criticizing at the very top of the commentary, like, did... I mean, like, this looks okay, but, like, there are some scenes that look like porno lighting. Like, when he was, like, swinging on top of the rooster for the first time where the shit was coming out of his wrist, there is, like, and I think a lot of it has to do with matching shots, like, from location to in the studio shots. But there are some shots where, like, the color's very washed out. It's, it's overly lit. Like, it looks like porno lighting. There's about 20, 30 shots throughout this movie where it's just like, geez, like, you can tell <laughs> they just cut to a studio shot. So what's going on if you're not watching a DVD, man? It's like Spider-Man busts into a burning building. They think there's an old woman. Uh, he sees a figure wrapped up in a blanket, old lady voice screaming. It turns out to be the Green Goblin. And I got to say, like, as much as I pissed all over that bouncing around on uh, parade balloon scenes, I, I think the action, and while it is very, very ripped off, there's bullet time shots and all this shit in this action sequence, I think this is the best action sequence in the movie. Mm-hmm. Because you, you, can, you can see they're knocking each other, and it helps that it's a, obviously a building that's crumbling shit, but they're knocking each other through walls. It looks like looks like superhuman, uh, you know, beings, like, beating the shit out of each other. Whereas before, when they were, like, just kind of elbowing each other in the face and shit up on the buildings, it, it, it kind of just looked like stuntmen slapping each other. And I think the special effects are better in this when Spidey does his jump. I mean, I would have to think this is a CGI Spider-Man right here, but it looks fairly convincing, I think. Yeah. Well, probably because it's like a complete, I mean, again, it's like a completely digital shot, so they probably put a lot of time into this one, you know? Yeah, and, and like, that's why I get, like, as much as we bitched and moaned about the CGI and stuff like that, like, there there are a few shots that, like, look really nice, and then there are a lot that look bad, so maybe there was, like, maybe they did farm a couple of these out to, like, a better special effects house. That was a cool move, too. I mean, yeah, you're actually getting, like, some, like, creative, like, fight choreography in this moment, too, like, webbing him to pull him back for a punch and stuff. Exactly. It's finally showing off what Spider-Man can do, you know? Exactly, and, like, that's exactly, I kind of didn't articulate it, but that first action scene, that big one that I was shitting all over, uh, like, when I was saying it didn't have any real detail in it, it kind of was just, like, stuff that could happen in any action movie, whereas this one, like, they're working in the abilities and the powers, and it makes sense. Here we have the rubber turkey Thanksgiving scene. <laughs> the Green Goblin shows up. Uh, Norman Osborn shows up. He brings a fruitcake. It's clearly Thanksgiving. 
And we uh, we actually haven't even touched on it, Trev, the, the love triangle between the whole movie, Peter Parker's trying to get to Mary Jane, but she's actually in love with uh, James Franco's character. I mean, what did you think of that? Dude? Like, I, I personally, I didn't have a problem with it, but I just found it completely ineffective because, like, she's with the, she's with James Franco, but it seems like she's never really into him. Yeah, I I don't know. It, I feel like if it was if they were trying to build up to something like much larger, it would have been fine. But it's kind of that aspect is actually forgotten about in the second film, and then they suddenly bring it back out of nowhere in the third film. I feel like it, it misses that connective tissue of like feeling like it matters because instead they have her with uh, John Jameson in the second film. Right. So it does feel like out of so out of place. But like you said, it doesn't really bother me too much. It's another obstacle like for him to get Mary Jane, you know. And it adds a little, it adds it gives Harry some like something to do in this film besides I mean they want Harry around to set up later events you know yeah it just seems like something that was I mean I'm not criticizing it being shitty it's just something that's obviously throwaway and, and like that's kind of my problem with the second half of this movie is like so much of the stuff seems throwaway catch up on the floor there yeah there was like a CGI close up with some blood splashing and it was literally like a tiny drop of blood that came off his arm because he's hanging up on the wall and like and, and that's what I didn't understand about this was okay to explain to people not following along with the DVD that action scene we were talking about where they fought Spider-Man got a cut on his arm and then he's like oh shit I guess it's Thanksgiving we don't see it but he swings back to the apartment to get back for Thanksgiving dinner and like He's just swinging back, and he's there in the Spider-Man costume. But somehow Norman Osborn has, like, completely gone, got rid of the Goblin Glider. Like, you know, his psychotic episode has ended. He's, he's put on a nice suit. And somehow he, he beat Peter to the, to the apartment. There might have been some kittens to save along the way or something, you know? That's true. Now, how did you feel about uh, Rosemary Harris as uh, Aunt May? I gotta say, man, like, to be honest with you, just because, like, I'm, I'm more a fan of, uh, of Cliff Robertson, like, I kind of paid more attention to the Uncle Ben scenes, but she kind of comes into the her own later, and I didn't think she was bad, but I kind of felt like, I don't know, it was like stereotypical, screaming old lady, kind of like, I don't know, like, I mean, I can't, I can't argue Aunt May is supposed to be an old gray woman, but I, I think they they did good in the new one in making the the uh, uncle and aunt slightly younger. Yeah, although, well, we'll get to it when we get to it. I feel like they made a slightly wasted Sally Field, but we'll talk about that later. So That is, I mean, yeah. Like, like in, well, actually in both movies, I think probably the actresses were wasted. I mean, I think Aunt Meg definitely kind of becomes a little more important in part two. But yeah, this one, she kind of just was like a cardboard cutout of like a a smiling old woman sitting at home waiting for Peter to come home or whatever. She's there because she's there in the comics. Yeah, exactly. And, like, that that's kind of my gripe. And, like, I understand, like, this ain't what a lot of people would look at in a movie. But this was, man, I've been waiting since I was a little kid for a Spider-Man movie. And to kind of just see, like, a by-the-numbers. I mean, this, this feels like a very, like, middle-of-the-road studio film. I mean, to me, like, some people could love it. But it just... You know, for everything that's done shitty, like the Green Goblins handled shitty, there's just a lot of stuff that's just kind of like, mm, yeah, mm, it's like filler. I mean, even at the time this came out, though, I mean, when you were, like, looking, comparing this to, like, the most recent Batman films, and, like, the Albert Pune Captain America, or the Corman Fantastic Four, you didn't feel like this was taking a, a step forward and at least being, like, a positive step towards what these films could become? 
Honestly, no, man. Just because, like, I feel like, and, and and granted, like, like when you're talking about from the the you know the like, I was looking more towards what what had come two years before in X Men. Like, that was more the bar I was judging it against. And X Men really bothered me because I feel like X Men just kind of took a lot of easy cop outs for just to make a, a lower budgeted movie to make a safer movie. And, like, that was my trepidation with this. I was like, are they going to basically Brian Singer X-Men this thing? And Raimi did try to put a little more color and goofiness into it or whatever. But, again, like, to me, it just, it, it's playing it too safe. And, like, I understand a lot of people have criticisms of the new franchise that started and stuff. But one thing that the new franchise did that, that Raimi could never, ever, like, get past the studio was they put a giant lizard in a movie like a monster a creature and to me that's what spider-man should be spider-man his villains like not all of them but a lot of them are very creature-based fantastical out of this world and i feel like this movie is just kind of like well see there is a green goblin because he's in the comic book so that should please you fans but it's not really the green goblin that you want or whatever and like that's how i felt with this film man like i was a you know and getting older, like, I'm a little less whatever, but, like, I wanted to see a badass movie with, like, awesome, exciting action scenes. And, like, this movie just was too kitty, too whatever. It's, like, you know, and, like, I'm not, I don't have quite that expectation now, but even still looking back on this, I see this as a very corny, like, for lack of a better term, it's just what I would call a cheese dick movie. It's just, I don't know, corny, man. It's interesting because, I mean, I, I guess this will come up again when we talk about Amazing Spider-Man. I think that's the problem with any comic book movie. And when, pan, when fans are into a comic book like a, a, as much as we are, everyone has their own take on like, what, they, what era of the comic they like the most and like, what they respond to from it. And for me, like, Spider-Man always does connect me more to my childhood. And I, I, I loved Spider-Man as a kid. And I kind of remember these comics feeling like they were more for kids. And so I don't look to, I don't expect a Spider-Man film to have like the same kind of tone or the same kind of intense action that like an X-Men film does or like a Daredevil film should. Um, Because like what you're saying is kind of how I feel about Daredevil is like for me, I mean, do you like the film Daredevil or? Yeah, I actually do. I I think, I mean, I can see why people glance at it and are like, oh God, it's so ridiculous and all that. Yeah, because there's one that to me feels like just this safe studio film. And to me, like, especially at that time, I was reading like the Bendis run on Daredevil and it seemed like it needed like a dark tone. Actually, we talked about The Crow earlier and that's kind of the tone I felt that movie should have. And instead it was this kind of goofy studio film. And But to me, that, that feels appropriate for Spider-Man. But the, but the Daredevil film, I'm not going to say too much about it. Like for every like corny thing it had, like, Colin Farrell having a bullseye stamp like stamped to his forehead for every corny thing like that. There was scenes of like him just going into a bar and beating the shit out of like 20, 30 people. Like, like there's corny shit. Like when him and uh, Jennifer Garner flip around on the playground and shit. And like those scenes are exactly why, like I can see why people look at it and like this movie's shit. But at the same time, like there, there are scenes like I love how he sleeps in the water chamber and shit. Like, there, there, there was some weird attempts. It was kind of half and half. It was like half Raimi Spider Man, and it was half like Batman. Like there were, like the director Mark Steven Johnson. He was, I feel like, trying to make it somewhat dark. Yeah, maybe I don't know. He wasn't doing a very good job. But <laughs> well, we'll have to movie war it someday. <laughs> yeah. So we totally kind of got off screen specific. This last twenty minutes, I gotta be honest with you. Again, like. It just 
kind of drudgery to me. Basically, Green Goblin slammed into the Aunt May house. He, he gassed her with the hallucinating gas. She was in the hospital. And I really felt like this was a moment where we could really up to Jeopardy and be like, is Aunt May going to recover from this? Because she is an older woman and this psychotropic gas and stuff that the Green Goblin has. And again, it's like, oh, no, two, like a day in the hospital, she's fine. And then it's just kind of an excuse, like a place for um, Mary Jane and Peter Parker to have a kind of like, you know, so somewhat romantic conversation. I, I guess Sam Raimi was sick of filming the, filming the scenes in the, in, the, in the middle of the street and shit. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious when you watch it that the Raimi views this as a, like a romantic film, maybe even above like an action film. So, well, yeah, and like honestly, like that was my main criticism of it. Like at the time, like I was just like, but let like let's put it in perspective. This movie came out five years after Titanic. At this point in time, every major studio was telling a director, if you want $100 million, it's got to be a love story. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I mean, I think a lot of people forget that because we think of this movie in a canon of, like, Marvel Cinematic Universe and shit. But it's not really, like, where this movie was at at the time. This was clearly in the wake of Titanic. Well, you judge everything and, like, what it's coming in the wake of. I mean, Amazing Spider-Man is coming in the wake of Twilight, so you start to see, like... Maybe not as much as I thought, but that certainly did creep into that film. So you always have to do kind of keep in mind of like what studio is wanting is what is wishing for at the time too. True, true. Because I mean, like I said, man, like if you're a director with your hand out for a two, at, at this point now, it's more like a two hundred million dollar budget. Like they're going to do what they call that four quadrant thing, where it's like men, women, children, older women, like whatever. Like you gotta you gotta throw a little something in there for everybody. Which, uh, unfortunately, like, I understand from a business standpoint, but it leads to some bland-ass movies, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, see, this is like, this. they shouldn't even put this in here, man. Franco comes in, he sees them holding hands in the hospital, and he's all like, ooh, like, he's starting to get it, he's starting to wake up, he's all pissed, and I'm just like, come on, man, like, as a director, as a storyteller, Raimi has not put any, like, time or emotion into that storyline, like, like, shit like this is why, to me, the second half of this movie doesn't work, man. It's just, it's, like I said, it's just, like, really soapbox, like, acting. It's just, like. It is so, I mean, I it's it's rushing along to get to, like, what comic fans know is going to happen with Harry. Yeah, I mean, basically, they just had to find a way to have the two best friends, high school best friends, turn against each other. Like, he comes home, and, like, and obviously, because we're watching this with the sound off and everything, but when I watch this movie, man, like, Franco's almost like, you can't even tell what he's saying. He, ta- he He's like, hey, Dan, I went there and married Jane. You are right. She's a gold-digging whore. Like, his voice is so whiny and nasally and terrible in this movie. I don't I don't know what happened. If he maybe back then he had a deviated septum, he had to get fixed or what? I'm trying to remember, like timeline wise, there was a there was a definite period of Franco's career where he was trying. He just wanted to be James Dean, and he was always trying right. to like act like that. And I don't know if this falls into that, but I think it, I feel like it probably does. Right. And speaking of James Dean, like yeah, like he did that James Dean biopic, which I, I actually after seeing it on TNT, I bought the DVD. I love it, man. He's yeah, it's he, good. He's great in that, but like this is just kind of like. I feel like Franco hadn't found his like thing as an actor yet. You know what I mean? No, I thought he got. I feel like he's better in in part two. Yeah, I and mean, actually, I actually uh, for whatever problems. I mean, 
I, I'm not the number three hater that a lot of people are, and I think he's great in it because it seems like he's just doing his own thing in part three and just kind of going over the top and being ridiculous in certain scenes. You, you know, you know what, man. I mean, I don't like number three. I think it fails as a movie, but out of the three, I would actually be hardest on this first movie, believe it or not, because I feel like this movie is not as overstuffed with the action scenes and the villains, or whatever. I feel like Raimi really could have nailed it story wise with these characters, man, and he just. I don't know, man. He just was treating it like it was a, like a Sunday morning comic strip bullshit. <laughs> now we're getting a, we're getting ahead of ourselves, and I don't think we're going to do this one. But like you know, you're you're well aware that most fans would point to Spider Man Two as like the pinnacle of this series, and even Marvel kind of made an edict at that time to tell all the Spider Man writers like, here, this is the movie you should try and be like aping. So how do you, what are your thoughts on the sequel? Part two, I see a lot of things that they improved on, especially from like a technology standpoint of handling the action and stuff. But like, I'll just run down. Like, I totally think Doc Ock is like miss like whatever. Like they mishandled him, man. Like and again, it's just that standard boring arc of having a villain created and then die at the climax. I th- I think shit gets like really corny. Like, I think Raimi starts, like, because, like, everybody's, like, you know that scene in part three everybody hates where he's, like, flopping down the street and he's supposedly emo and all that? Like, mm-hmm. everybody's, like, well, that came out of nowhere. I was, like, no, nah, watch part two, man. Watch the raindrops keep falling on my head bullshit. And, like, Raimi was really starting, like, as, obviously, this movie was hugely successful, man. Like, it made, like, $800 million worldwide. He was getting more leverage. Like, he started really cheesing up part two, man. Like, and, like, again... Sorry, but the rule that every part two has to deal with the subplot of the hero losing his hours, fuck that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, in their defense, you knew Spider-Man was going to get to it because that's one of the most iconic comic moments, too, is the Spider-Man no more. So they couldn't avoid it forever, I suppose. Yeah, but, like, I don't know, man. Like, like I understand why people are obsessed with the number three. But to me, with these types of films, you got to go for a four-film arc and, like, it, it is. Part two is the one where they lose their powers. Like, nothing you can do about it. And I'm just like, I don't know, man. So, I mean, like... Well, Nolan Nolan held it off till uh, the third Batman film, actually. You look that, at it that, that way. That, that was is true. But part one was such a long origin. I, I totally skipped over the part that I laughed at the hardest. Was this last call where he's at the hospital and gets a call. He, he actually receives a, a phone call from the Green Goblin. <laughs> he receives a call from the Green Goblin... And it's like, it pretty much, he, it's like the Green Goblin just called him up and said, hey, it's me on the telephone. Now come here so we can, to this location so we can have a climax. And it's just like, you know, because the mansion that Norman Osborn lives in, it's like all old-timey. Clearly he has like rotary phones. Could you imagine him in this ridiculous green costume with the big gloves on trying to put his fingers <laughs> into the I was actually going to say, <laughs> knowing my sensibilities, if you're going to have that phone call and it's already kind of comedic, I might have even... I might have been tempted to cut to that to show, That's like, what I'm just, just go for it, you know? Especially if you're going to try to go for this Gonzo thing to, to, to have him in that ridiculous costume. Because, like, you know, he can't he can't hear shit through that big plastic helmet trying to, like, move the, the receiver of the phone into the mouth hole so he can talk and then try to get the earpiece up to wherever he could hear mm-hmm. it from and shit like that. Yeah, it's surprising that Raimi didn't go for it. I mean, these films are obviously very arch and just very over the top. And, I mean, that's why... You know, going back to part three, that's why Venom would never work in this in this series. Is like Venom's too serious and too violent of a character to fit into this kind of world that Raimi's creating. 
Well, not only that, but but Venom. Um, if you read the early issues where the Venom storyline really comes into hold, uh, it's like a progression. Like he doesn't start out as like evil and heinous and murderous. He goes more insane, and like you just can't do that as, as like a twenty-minute villain in a film. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and jumping into the climax here, the climax is that Mary Jane wakes up on top of. Uh, bridge here high up she's about to fall she has her slippers on this whole time meaning the green goblin abducted her out of her bed gassed her flew her across the city her slippers stayed on and then he dangles her off the side and then her slippers fall off i just i don't know man like i I know that's nitpicky but that's just hilarious (laughs) the idea (laughs) that the slippers stayed on that long that was an odd shot right there with her reflected in Spider-Man's eyes. It was very bizarre because, like, I don't even think it would be possible. Like, yeah, his eyes don't seem reflective in any other moment. Well, not only that, but but in order to ref- like, it's it's basically like if what's reflected in a pair of sunglasses, right? Like, in order to reflect yeah. somebody's face that big, like, you'd have to be like real close, and he was obviously pretty far away. So, like, Green Goblin. For people not watching the DVD, he says, I, I got this like this cable car full of kids I'm going to drop, and on the other arm I got Mary Jane. You have to pick one. So, And I feel like, I don't know, man. Like, There's obviously trying to get up to the what happened with Gwen Stacy teasing us. Oh, is the girl going to die? He's going to choose to save the civilians. But somehow he swings down, and like I still don't understand how that could even be like possible, even with Spider-Man's like, real powers. Like, to catch her, swing down, like... It just seems like that car would have fell so much quicker. I mean, you're supposed to be a Spider-Man fan, and here you are doubting him. I'm not doubting him. I'm just doubting this cheese ball movie. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you first saw this, did you uh, have any, like, incl- did, did you think at all they might kill her in this moment, since it was so obvious they were going for that Gwen Stacy kind of thing? or? You know, like... I don't know, man. Like I would, to be honest with you, I, I do. I actually really do remember the first time. I did not rush out. It's like I wasn't the fanboy who jumped in. Like I wasn't staying outside the theater on Friday night and shit. I actually did not want to see this movie. I was dreading it. Like uh, my dad uh, finally, like he was going to go see it, so it was kind of like, well, I might as well go see it too. So I probably saw it a good like month into its run. It died out. I think we we're one of the few only people left in the theater. And by this point in the movie, dude, I was so, like, my expectations of not really the movie per se, but just what I wanted in a Spider-Man movie were so dashed at this point. Like, I was like, this movie's corny. This is a movie made to just sell theme park rides and and little toys and shit. And I was just like, I don't know, man. Like, to me, like, you know, everything was so broken at this point that I, she could have just fell and died and I wouldn't care either way, to be honest with you. Now here we have the "if you mess with Spider-Man, you mess with New York" line, which I don't know. Yeah, the line in the scene, I don't know. But supposedly, from what I, whatever, I heard that this whole thing was added in later, after the 9/11 thing, which I don't. It wouldn't surprise me, but yeah, I've heard that. I don't know how true it is. It's become a part of the franchise that they can't break away from, and even the even the web film has its own version of this. With the crane operators, which, which, like, if there was just like cranes there for him to that were just kind of just sitting there for him to swing on but like i gotta admit like you know we can do that when we do it but like that is one of the few things where i'm like what the hell and the amazing spider-man and i just it is corny and like with okay with this movie i i'm not gonna pick on raimi because like i i remember that time i was old enough to be really aware during that time i do remember how traumatic of an event that was 
So the idea of this filmmaker is going to throw this scene out there to try to rally people and shit. I ain't, I ain't going to criticize it. But like no. you said, the way they couldn't ever get past it, like, I'm mm-hmm. just like, ugh. See, this scene here, dude, like, for everything I praise that building burning scene, to me, this is just shit right here. This is terrible. Like, the bomb blows his mask open so we can see some Tobey Maguire acting. And I got to say, it looks ridiculous. And, like, basically, Gobby just, like, barrage punches him in the face over and over until he gets, like, a busted lip. And, and like, this stuntman acting here, it just, to me, this is not, like, what should be in a hundred forty million dollar film? This is a very lame climax to me. And like, they should have just pulled the they should have pulled the Spider Man mask completely off because something it just looks so strange the way it is right now. It looks so strange and stupid. And by this point, it doesn't matter just because Norman, you know, Green Goblin, like he knows who Spider Man is. So like, why? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But like, I gotta say, like when I watched this the other day. Like, like I said, some scenes seem like something you would see in a big-budget movie, and some scenes seem cheap. And I gotta say, man, it looked like they just shot this on the the leftover set of Jim Henson's Labyrinth. I swear, like, this is just, like, such a, like, a chiller, filler, creature feature, like, leftover spooky set to have this fight in. It's just, it's just corny to me. And I don't understand this, this stabbing spear, electric spear thing. Where did this come from? Like, like... Like, just in terms of physically, like, where did he pull this out of? Like, I never understood what that thing was. Yeah, I don't know. I can't help you there. I assume it was something that was attached to the glider, is what I've always Yeah, because the glider had, like, all them, like, fort tongue-looking, you know, things come off to mm-hmm. stab people. But he just kind of, like, because before that, they were hand-to-hand fighting, and, like, it wasn't like he had it attached to his back or costume. It just came out of nowhere. I feel like what Spider Spider Man just pulled down a brick wall onto the Green Goblin. That's just that's flat out trying to murder him. I mean, there's no right, yeah. way around that. I mean, like I could like I mean, then again, like because like going back to the nerd shit, and maybe this has changed with you know the rewritings of characters. But the Marvel tech spec, so to speak, was I always understood it that Spider Man had the superhuman strength equivalent of being able to lift ten tons, and uh, Goblin had the equivalent to lift four tons, so he's he's clearly at a, like a he's super powered. Don't get me wrong; I mean, he could just kill just about any you know anybody. Period. But like, he's way weaker than you know. He's less than half the strength of Spider Man. But like, obviously, this movie, whatever, they just you know they kind of equaled him out or whatever. And I, I think that's kind of like why these scenes are boring. If they would have filmed it more, where Goblin had to be more resourceful and smart and use his gadgets. And he does, mm-hmm. like, throw a lot of bombs around and shit, but I don't know. Now, I do like that they keep, I mean, this this moment here does come right from the comics, though, for the most part. And I, I, I mean, you talk about you don't agree with them killing him, but actually this was the way it played out in the comics. So I kind of like that they kept it true to that moment. Exactly. For people not I mean, obviously in the comics they brought him back, but that's what they always well, do, yeah. you know. But, I mean, to be credit, he, he died and stayed dead for a long, long time. Like, it wasn't, yeah. you know. But basically for people who you know, don't know the comic, not watching DVD, basically, like, Goblin's lost the fight, and he uses, like, a little remote control to have his glider come in and impale Spider-Man, but, of course, Spidey sense kicks in, and he jumps out of the way. Now, if you watch this, what I don't like about this is the comedic moment where Defoe close up and goes, oh, like, that was just, like, an insert shot. That's Raimi's goofiness. Like, that totally, like, screwed the thing. Now, this shot is very horrific where he got the blood coming out of his mouth and all that. But that little, like, goofy, like, Evil Dead 2-0, whatever, like, 
like, yeah, because I, I was like, well, this action scene sucks, but I knew this was coming. I was kind of amped up to see him die, but then that little moment, I was kind of like, like, just yeah. <laughs> Raimi cheesy. I don't know. I guess that's, I mean, as we approach the end now, I guess that's where we'll just, we'll never match up on this film is that if you're not willing to accept like the Raimi kind of sense of humor and cheese in this, then yeah, it's, it's not a film that's ever going to connect to you. Whereas to me, especially compared to all these other superhero films that do feel so similar to me and, and just so like everything's the same. I, I enjoy like having the, the Raimi take on it. Yeah. I just, I don't know. Like, like I thought, you know, around the time this, this movie was made or whatever, I thought I was a huge Sam Raimi fan. I was excited that he did it. But I guess, like, I just didn't really realize how Sam Raimi, he would make this movie, you know what I mean? Now, one thing we never talked about that, I, and this will go more towards your side of it, is one thing I don't like about the Raimi series, and they never got this right, is that he kind of forgot that Spider-Man's supposed to be really funny. That was kind of just completely true, forgotten about. True. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know if they just didn't think McGuire was... And that's weird, because they actually let Peter Parker be really goofy and funny, but they, then once he puts on the mask, he just kind of becomes very serious and stoic. Yeah, like, like, one of the things, like, Trev's alluding to from the comic books and stuff, in case you, people don't know, is a lot of wisecracking and stuff while the fight, again, here's some real porno lighting right here, but uh, a lot of wisecracking going on during the fights and stuff, but he always comes up with nicknames for, for, the, uh, for the villains, and uh, Green Goblin had a couple, but one of the main ones, he always called him Gobby, because, you know, just to, like underplay him to make him, you know, because he was a silly like goblin creature and shit. And yeah, it's it's and like I felt like they made Spider-Man too wimpy because I feel like in the fights in the comic book, like you said, the humor is there to kind of diffuse his nervousness of like it's not that Spider-Man isn't scared in the comic books, but it's kind of like that gallows humor of like yeah. you know this is a deadly fight, lots of things could be go wrong, civilians could be killed. Spider-Man could be killed. Yeah, no, and again, I think, I mean, one of the reasons I think me and you like Spider-Man so much as a character is he's one of the few superheroes who does seem scared and always seems like he feels like he might lose every fight he's exactly, in. Exactly, exactly. And, and like, I kind of feel like the approach they went with this just for a dramatic choice, whatever, was they pretty much had him, you know, just do that thing where he pretty much lost every fight until the very end and then he pulled it out. And, like, I, I understand, like, why filmmakers do that. But, again, like you said, man, like, like I don't mind if during the course of an adaptation, you change something if it makes it better. But just to change something to make it easier, to make it an easier movie to make, it's kind of like, mm, whatever. Yeah. It's, it's just odd. I mean, especially since he's wearing, when he's Spider-Man, he's wearing a mask, you could, ADR, you could ADR in all kinds of goofy lines. It's just like they just forgot to take that step. Well, not only that, but like I feel like McGuire was hardly ever in the suit. And I understand there's a lot of physical shit he couldn't do on wires and stuff like for insurance reasons just alone you can't risk your star flying all around like that but like at the same time like i feel like you know we kind of miss out on the body language because like spider-man i mean granted it seems like he's very like hyper and manic in, in like the comic book like with his body gestures and his like you know it seems like he turns his head a lot and says like quick things and like like you said like they could have ADR'd out ADR'd in all these lines but the way they're playing it it just he was so like just always, well, I mean, in this movie especially, he's just constantly recovering from just getting punched in the face. They didn't really film it in a way where he could have really, like, been in control of the fights and been doing stuff, and I don't know. Now, I feel like this is a pretty brave way to end this film compared to, like, other films in the genre. I guess it's not as brave when you realize that they probably knew they were going to get to make more, but to have the hero actually turn down the girl because he's trying to protect her is 
that wasn't something you saw a lot in movies like this around this time. It seemed like any other director probably would have been really tempted to just put them together at the end. Yeah, and I gotta say, this is very distasteful as well, because basically what the end scene is, if you're not watching the DVD, they basically go to Norman Osborn's funeral, and like it's, you know, it's in the graveyard, and you see Harry walk away all jilted and shit, and basically, uh, Mary Jane and Peter Parker, they have a talk where it's like, okay, like, you know, because they're both at a vulnerable moment and shit, they're both sad, and she kind of finally gives in and is like, yeah, like, let's be together, they kiss, and then he's just like, after this whole movie trying to get in this girl's panties, he's like, no, I can't do it. Like, oh, I'll take care of you and do this and this, but uh, I promise you. But yeah, he, like you said, he just breaks it off. He's like, psh, 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 nope. So yeah, very strange. Very strange to have this love triangle pay off in a way where actually nobody gets. <laughs> we like again, this movie being throwaway and kind of like, you know, leaving me cold in a way. It's like, yeah, it's a love triangle that ends up with nobody hooking up. But he's doing it for the right reasons. I mean, character-wise, to me, this is a much more appropriate ending than the other film we're going to do in this franchise. So I can live with this. I, I agree with you. I, I totally understand what you're saying, Trev. But at the same time, like, in this very kind of, like, you know, insular world that Raimi's built up, it's like the, the goblin is dead. There's no other supervillains in this, like... You know, he's basically breaking up with her to keep her safe or whatever, and he wants to be responsible for being Spider-Man, but in his mind, like, there's really no big threat anymore, like, whereas in the new movie, they, like, granted, they kind of do the same thing, but then they go back on it, but in the new movie, he, he tells Gwen Stacy, like, I made a promise to your father, I gotta protect you, but in that world, there's still supervillains out and on the loose and whatever, you know? Well, I mean, I think... Even if there's the goblins dead, I feel like he should know at this point that being Spider-Man is not necessarily going to be the safest job. And there might always be someone else around the corner like that. Now, here's how every Spider-Man film has to end, just like every Superman film has to end with them either swinging around or flying out into space. I, I gotta say, like, even though it's clear CGI and stuff, I like this right here, man. Like, I gotta say, that was a good, like, the way it was, like, overly colorful, whereas before there was, like, the kind of washed out just cheap film, porno lighting throughout, like, a lot of the other... Yeah, that moment actually looked the most like that uh, World Trade Center teaser we were talking about. Yeah, it was very colorful, and, you know, the camera swing around, but it was very dynamic. I guess that's the main word I, I was too dumb to come up with, was dynamic. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, just looking at the credits here, now we're in the end credits, uh, gotta give a shout-out to good old Tim Dazarn, played the, the drunken father of Mary Jane. Just give him a shout-out, just because my dad actually works with his brother, so it's kind of oh, okay. it, yeah, it's kind of cool that like like I always hear about the latest movies Tim Desarn is Tim Desarn man he's got nobody will know his name you might recognize his face but he's in everything man like he played the uh, the grumpy old guy they run into in Cabin in the Woods he's been in like I can't remember which one but he was in one of the texture the guy's in everything man like it, it's crazy from the from the you know bloodiest horror movie to the, the biggest budget like whatever superhero thing man that dude's a working actor. I saw in there too. I didn't. I guess I didn't know which character he played, but Scott Spiegel popped up in there again. Not very surprising. But. Yeah, man, you know what? I was looking, looking for the Scotty, uh, <laughs> Scotty, you know, a cameo. And Scott Spiegel, people don't know because the credits going around. He's a director, but he, but he grew up, you know, came up with Sam Raimi and stuff. But man, he'll he'll make a million cameos, even in non Raimi things like. He has a tie to Lawrence Bender too, I believe. That's why he did the cameo in the in the movie uh, Lionheart, the Van Damme Lionheart movie. Yep. So yeah. 
He also directed the Terrible from Dusk Till Dawn and, and Hostile sequels. So. Yeah, part well, part two and then part part two of Dusk Till Dawn, part three. I don't know if you saw this, Trev, and I just caught it. Uh, it's a production executive for Marvel, like not like he was a big guy, but just kind of in there. They had Kevin Feige, so wow, man, Kevin Feige was really yeah, I'd, back here. Back in yeah, the I didn't realize that he was going that far back. No, I like I really don't like Kevin Feige. I kind of find him a blowhard. Like I didn't like how he did that kind of preemptive strike of just running around telling every news outlet that they could replace Downey Jr. <laughs> like I, I found that very like shitty to the fans, just because like. It was right before Iron Man three came out, and I'm just like, like, get your business dealings. You know when it's time to do business. Like, we're trying to get excited about this movie, and all you can talk about is how you can find a cheaper alternative to the movie star. <laughs> so you don't like him as a person, but I mean, do you respect what he's doing with that whole series? I mean, not really, to be honest with you, because I kind of feel like I find I kind of feel like the. Uh, I don't know how because we're running out of time here, but like, I kind of feel like a lot of what makes the Marvel movies good are is the directors, and I do understand that Marvel actually holds more control of their movies than the directors do. But like, I look at a movie like Thor, and everybody's like, "Wow, that was actually good," and I'm like, in my opinion, I think that's because Kenneth Branagh you know, makes the story work. Not so much just because of like what the production executives are like demanding or whatever. Right, but I mean, I'm, my, my argument to that would be that Feige is the guy who's like actually saying like, "Hey, we should we should hire someone like a Kenneth Branagh. We should hire a James Gunn. He's taking a risk that other studios don't take." So. I mean, that is true. But for every one of those, that, like, like I don't know if you saw the drama behind the Thor two directors, but like, oh yeah, the Thor two director search was basically just a search to see who would work the cheapest. <laughs> like, yeah. And I'm just like, mm, like, yeah, that that would be. I mean, and this is kind of off topic, but that's definitely my biggest concern for the Marvel universe moving forward is like the, the their sudden desire to be as cheap as possible. Yeah, it's very weird. And by the by the way, because obviously we're just talking over these credits, because like, who cares about credits? But I gotta say, this kind of showed the studio influence. This was a horrible credit sequence in terms of the music that was played. First, we had shitty Chad Kroger, Need a Hero, which like. You wouldn't think of it, but when you hear the song, I swear that song was modeled after the Kiss from a Rose song from Batman Forever. <laughs> like, the chorus, it sounds so similar. And then after that, we had some shitty Sum 41 song. It's what we're all about. We rock. And that's what we're all about. But at the end, I gotta say, even when I saw it in the theater the original time, the number one thing I liked is they did play the theme from Spider-Man from the old Ralph Bakshi. You know, the, the Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. So, like, at least Raimi worked that in at the very end here. Somewhere that when this was in theaters that it, it wasn't there. It was actually like an Aerosmith version or something. Is that true? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I, dude, I'm I'm 100% sure that it played the real version because I remember uh, okay. it. Yeah, because I remember sitting in the theater and like just, I mean, it sounds like hard to believe because it's like a movie a lot of people probably came out of like pumping their fists. But again, dude, like. Oh man, like I just really came out of this like defeated, and that was the one bright spot at the end for me. Well, they had that song in the movie too. That cowboy guy is playing it in the subway. So they yeah, had a little, like it was kind of, yeah, it. it was real quick. And he's kind of well. That's in the credits. I guess I guess we can do another five minutes to wrap this up because I mean, who cares if we're the movie's over? But like, yeah, man. Like again, sorry guys if you're a fan of the movie out there. Listen to this. Like, yeah, I hate this movie, and I try to be. I try to contain my hate as much as possible, but, like, I remember growing up, to tell you how much this I hate this movie, growing up, I always 
like wanted to have a tattoo. I always wanted to get a tattoo, and I was like, but the main thing was like I could never decide like what should I get because like it's hard. Like tattoo is for life, man. You got to get something you really love. And like around the time this movie came out, I was old enough where I could go get a tattoo, and I was like, I think I want to get a Spider Man tattoo because I'll always love Spider Man, and like you know I don't want mind having that on my arm. This movie came out, no Spider Man tattoo. Still never got a Spider Man tattoo. Never got a tattoo. Period. <laughs> all because <laughs> Sam Raimi on all his bumbling fucking around with the Spider-Man character. That's what this all comes down to, is you hold it against Raimi that you never got a tattoo. No, I'm actually glad, because like, if I would have got the tattoo six months before this movie came out, and I would have seen this thing. Because like, to me, Spider-Man, and a lot of it has to do that Spider-Man actually wasn't that popular for a lot of years. I mean, comic book characters in general were never as popular as they are now, but like, just seeing this thing kind of blown out for a mass audience, and it and a big part of it is, like, when something you hate so much and you're so disappointed in it and all that, and then it, but it's something that everybody loves and people can't talk about. Because not when this movie was in theaters, but by the time it came out on video, I was actually working at a video store. So I had – and this is back in the days where most people were renting VHS, even though DVD was out. But people would come in, they would slap that Spider-Man tape to return it, and they're like, it's great. It's the best movie ever made. And I had a fucking fake smile and go, oh, yeah, it's pretty good. And just the <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and like, so, so this movie crushed my love for Spider-Man. And, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing we didn't know each other back then. Because I remember seeing this opening night. And I remember walking out of the theater. I mean, they made it not pumping my fist. But I certainly remember being like, man, I can't. I hope they get to do a sequel. And I think they're on, in the right direction. And for me, it's like, looking back, I can see flaws in this film. I still think this is one of the better superhero origin films that I've seen. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's coming under the shadow of, it's definitely got that Richard Donner Superman influence. I think we didn't even talk about that at all, but that's, you can't deny, like, that's a huge influence on this film, too, in terms of, like, oh, yeah. the mixing, like, earnest, you know, sentimentality and camp and kind of more goofy, you know, sensibilities. Um, but, I don't know, it just worked to me, and I guess part of it for me is that I've, I've kept consistently reading the Spider-Man comics since, like, you know, um, I started reading comics probably in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, and and on. And like I said, for as much as I love the character, it's not a character that's been treated very well in the comics. So just to get what I felt like a good movie out of something that kept getting shit on in the comics, I was pretty happy. I mean, I could definitely see it, because if people don't know, like, this is, uh, comic book-wise, at the time that this movie came out, like, yeah, Spider-Man had run its course, and, like, obviously Marvel Comics, who would financially it was super struggling at that point they weren't going to ever retire the character but i always remember there was lots of talks around this time period like what can we do with spider-man like you know what i mean and like they kind of did do that later on i think with the ultimate spider-man which i i actually came back to comics and i did about four issues of ultimate spider-man before i had to tap out but yeah so like this is just a very interesting movie in terms of the time it came out superhero well, it was movies important. i mean yeah we were coming off of a time where like I was just happy to see this movie starting to be taken seriously. I mean, I did have the Captain America movie fresh in my head and, right. and films like, and you know, and then they were just making up superheroes for terrible films like, you know, like a blank man or meteor man. And it's, you know, it just didn't seem like this was a genre that ever started to get taken seriously. And looking even back on this, I mean, it's hard to, it's, it's maybe you don't remember this or our listeners don't remember, but when they cast Tobey Maguire, that was considered a big deal because he was kind of like an indie darling. Right. And this is when they started to get like real actors to be in these films and suddenly, you know, really pushing him to the mainstream. So it got me excited for what was good, what was to come. Well, like, I mean, he got like a don't get me wrong, like I I read different things online, but he 
Tobey Maguire got about three to four million dollars in this movie, which I mean, it's pretty good payday. But this, you gotta, you gotta figure this is back when like people like Stallone were getting like fifteen to twenty million dollars a film. Tobey Maguire was actually seen as a like a cost uh, cutting move, so to say. Like they were trying to get somebody who was like relatively unknown, but had proved himself as being a good actor. So like, yeah. So I mean, this definitely was the movie that made Maguire. A, Star, I think. And like I said, looking at what we could have had, we, we could have had the Golan Globus version, which, I mean, would have been atrocious. I'm sure, I know Albert Pune was even in talks to direct that. Uh, for a long time, Cameron was attached, and I don't know if you've read the treatment of his version, but that was, that sounded terrible, so. I, I've, yeah, I've, I've read, like, like I don't know if it was, like, the full of whatever he came out, but I read about, like, a four-page kind of document treatment thing, and, like, yeah, it always started, and, and like, just to put in perspective, that was that was like around the '95 era is when Cameron was trying to do it, but the rights issue because Golden Globus had the rights and then they half sold the rights and there was all this weird stuff. Basically, the rights issue came so weird because Marvel was so bankrupt and they were selling it to like hucksters and stuff. Yeah. But like, yeah, like I and and I mean, whatever. Like, like I think uh, I've read different things, but I think even Cameron was going to do the uh, the bodily fluid web shooters and all that. So I mean. Yeah, I mean, I guess I probably shouldn't hate this movie as much as, like, whatever, but for the initial, like, I've been waiting my whole life for this, like, this movie's pretty bad to me. I guess I'll never I, let that go. I mean, I know, I know how you feel. I mean, I don't think, I mean, I didn't hate Man of Steel, but I know what it's like when you care about a character so much and you just feel like it didn't get it right, and that's how I feel about that film, so I assume that's how you feel about this, and... I mean, we just don't agree in terms of, like, what we look for in a Spider-Man film, and that'll come up again in a further episode, but... Um, to me, this did hit the right notes, and I guess I'm forgiving enough of Raimi's goofy sensibilities that I could enjoy it. Well, I, I mean, this being the first, like, episode, whatever, this podcast, I guess we should cut it off, because we really do have all these other Spider-Man movies to go through. But, you know, Spider-Man history, like, coming from it, two guys with a long history from it, you know, just goes to show, man, like, movies are not one-size-fits-all. <laughs> no, know? definitely not. So I, right. I, I don't know. Like, I mean, obviously, we're kind of like finding our way with this, but I think this was a good initial effort. So, yeah, no, I had a good time. It was good talking through the film with you. So, so yeah. So, I mean, this thing is brand new. Whoever's going to be listening to this, so eventually, I, w- I would like to maybe get some interaction. Maybe we'll do a Facebook. Maybe we'll whatever. But, but that w- that'll be coming soon. But thanks a lot for listening, everybody. And I guess we're just going to wrap it up now. Yep. We'll see you in the future with Amazing Spider-Man and, you know, a lot of other films that we can't seem to find some common ground on, so. All right, so what what is it? Excelsior? Should we tell everybody Excelsior? <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's have our little Stan Lee cameo. All right. All right. Stan Lee would say Excelsior, whatever that means to you. <laughs> have a good one. Bye.